Hey everyone, welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Justorian, and DC's... Derricker. How are you today, Justin? Justorian. You know, I'm doing alright. I'm, uh... It was an interesting night last night, let's just say that. Oh. Yeah? Yeah, well... Good way well, or bad way? Uh... uh more oh, I, I think I... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my daughter Sorry. needed a, uh... Learn a hard lesson last night, so... Oh. Um... I remember you told me she was having a sleepover. Did that not turn out good? Um, let's just say without going into too many details, her friends ended up wanting to go home. Oh, yes. That's kind of a bummer. It is a bummer, but it's, um, hopefully teaches her a lesson. Gotcha. Yeah. How about you, man? How are you? How you been? Uh, completely honest. I'm a little hungover. (laughs) (laughs) This should be fun. Yeah, uh, it's this weekend was our like town days, uh, St. Uh, Clair days. Sure, sure. And and we've never actually gone to it because in the five years that we've lived here, we always had dance competition on this weekend. Oh, sure. Um, and this year, nationals are the weekend after the 4th of July, so it's later, and so we were actually here. And uh, so... Yesterday, I, I helped my dad do some sheetrock in his house, and then we had the parade at like three o'clock, and we got probably halfway through it, and a storm rolled in and dumped water on us. Uh, so, like the parade route is like literally like a block and a half from my house, and soaked head to toe before we were even halfway back. Uh, my shoes are still outside trying to dry, and then uh, so it cleared off, and then uh, they had a beer garden with. And there was a band that was literally like less than a hundred yards away from my house. So we were there. My dad came out for that and, uh, we had some beers. I remember coming home. I don't really remember going to bed <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's, I'm drinking, dr- drinking some tea today. Some green tea. Turn on good. Good. I'll be, I'll be all right. Well, nothing like a good, uh, chapter review. Uh, from Dead House Gates to to sober you up for sure. <laughs> I don't feel too bad, honestly. It's just like you know, like I, I don't know, getting older. I don't like being hungover, and so I was kind of right on that edge. Mm. Um, but I'm a little like shaky this morning. If I don't know if you know what that's like, I guess what maybe your hangovers are different. But I really try not to get hungover. But yeah, this I'm not really like a headache. I think it's starting to rain again. Um, sorry, I just heard a bunch of noise. And uh, yeah, kind of a slight headache and just like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. That's fair. Yeah, I don't, I guess I don't drink very often. Um, and when I do, I usually don't get drunk. So uh, yeah, I guess it's hard to say. I don't know. I don't really, I don't even feel like I remember what a hangover feels like. Uh, yeah, well, that's good. It's not fun, but no. I usually just drink a shit ton of water and take some pain reliever and I'm fine. But that's I, I know Kelly made me take some uh Advil or whatever the hell last night um before bed. I remember that. So that probably helped. Was uh was your wife drunk too? Yeah. Okay, well that's good. <laughs> and we didn't have to drive, we literally just had to walk home and uh it was good. Some of the other uh dance parents were there because they they used to live in town and they still when their kids went to the school in town. So they came to support and hang out and so it was a good time. But yeah, the, it was a local, 
band. They were like three twenty something year, year old kids or four of them, sorry. And they played like seventies, eighties, nineties covers. Um, they were pretty, they're actually pretty good. Hmm. The other band, the other band that was supposed to like headline it, there's two bands, but they, I guess their equipment got wet or something as they're setting up. And so they had to dip out. And so this other band, like they didn't have any lights or anything. So they're like, well, we don't know what we're going to do when it gets dark. <laughs> um, but they got a few lights and uh, they played from like, they, they were supposed to start at six and they didn't end up starting till sometime after seven. And they played till probably 11, 1130. It's wow. a long time to play on a stage. They took a few breaks, you know, and, um, yeah, I don't know. It was a good time. Good time. It was a lot of fun. Glad we were able to make it. Hell yeah. Should invite us down next time. Come down and walk home drunk with y'all. <laughs> that would have been fun. I could have got you with a pie at the same time. I should have thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. We got to schedule that. You got to come up here and pie. You got to give me a pie. <laughs> yeah. Danny said she'll record it. Awesome. Is she going to love that? I bet. Yeah. She said she's going to put it on her TikTok. Oh, for sure. It's going yeah, everywhere. We can, we can put it on ours too. Yeah, it'll be interesting, I guess. Yeah, we'll have to do that soon. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, I guess what do you say? Should we get into uh, fuck our episode, our 24th episode of this book and uh, chapter 20 summary of Dead House Skates here? Yeah, we can definitely do that. And uh, our, our new normal here, just remember to check out Silverstone's books, um, their website, silverstonesbooks.com. A big selection of fantasy, sci-fi, horror books, and a lot of the books are signed and really reasonably priced. Not, you know, I mean, I I would think a signed book is usually going to be a little bit more expensive, but these really are fair priced. Um, help us out by helping them out in supporting self-published authors, and remember that they do have a code for you to use for an additional ten percent off your order. And that is DJ Quest. So check out their site, pick up a book you've been eyeballing and save a little bit of money. I've had a couple orders from there too. Um, and their packaging is really good. It's it's not like you get a package from Amazon. You can tell they definitely put a lot of care into it. Those stupid um, padded envelopes where everything's yeah. fucking dented anyway. Right. Yeah. This, you get a nice, a, a, a very nice, like a Robin's egg blue color box, I, I feel like. And uh, yeah, things are packaged nicely, which may not seem like a big deal, but you can tell that they go the extra mile. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. I, uh, I got to get, I got to purchase a book from there eventually. You definitely should. Oh, I will. I just got to find one that I want. <laughs> That's sometimes the hard part, just picking one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on to our patrons in order of subscription, we have Jan, the picker of pies, Luciana at Tregan, Ryan, the topological Damien, the rock faces, uh, Nate, fiddle me this shield anvil, Dylan, and then quartermaster, Sergeant Lieutenant Parker. So thank you all for your contribution. Thank you for getting, uh, all of your nicknames, uh, up to date with us and this is the first episode where we have all of the patrons uh, and their nicknames so thank you all again uh, also before i forget i don't know if you saw this on our our twitter but uh the uh 
gentlemen that run Silverstones, um, I, I guess it was probably a week or so at this point, maybe a little longer, week and a half, but their air conditioner went out. And so they were, uh, I guess, basically just, you know, trying to get some help with that. You know, I mean, selling books is, is income. So um, I issued a little challenge out there um, that uh, if somebody bought a book from there um, and showed it to me, that I would give them a shout out on the show here and uh, I would even take a recommendation and I would pick up uh, that book from Silverstones. Actually, I got two. Um, so Quinn Jaguer, I hopefully am not butchering your last name there, um, was the first and he recommended a book called The Deathless Beast. Um, I do not have it yet, but that should be coming. And then Dwayne Ridgeway was the second and he recommended a book uh i think what was it called the 11th cycle uh, so i've got those two books coming i would imagine they'll probably be here monday but i told him i'd give him shout outs on the show so uh yeah there you go guys thank you that is really cool awesome well thank you you two yeah um trying to help out a little bit yeah absolutely um i guess you want to take us away in our epigraph here sure let me get my talking voice ready (laughs) yeah (laughs) the path's a dire thing the gate it leads to is like a corpse over which ten thousand nightmares bicker their fruitless claims the path trout sent all baccarala awesome all right section one here seagulls wheeled in the air it had been a while since they had seen them their course bearing south by southeast land grew steadily as the boat approached not a single cloud was in the sky. Salk joined Kalam at the forecastle. Both of them were wearing black cloaks. To the sailors manning stations on the boat, the sight of them was like a pair of great ravens, was black rot with almonds. Oblivious to all this, Kalam held his gaze on the island in front of them. The two engage in a small conversation on the age of the empire. Salk then asks what he should expect from Malaya's city. Kalam responds by telling him to blink or to think of a pigsty by the sea. Sulk said he was sorry for asking. Kalam switches subjects to that of the captain. Sulk said that there wasn't any change. Inside the assassin's head, he curses sorcery and how much he hated it. Sulk leaned forward and rested his hands on the railing. He explains to Kalam that a fast ship could get them over to Unta in a day and a half. Kalam asked how Salk knew that information. Salk responded by saying that he asked a sailor, sailor, that salt-crusted friend of the assassin that was pretending to be in charge. What was his name again? Kalam responded that he never asked. Salk said that this was an admirable talent. Kalam asked, what is? Salk replied by saying that Kalam crushed his own curiosity. Kalam was a hard man to know and even harder to predict. Kalam tells him... That's what's up. Elon makes a bold statement and tells Kalam that this is why the assassin likes him. Kalam questions Salk that he does. Salk says the assassin does, and it's important to him. Kalam tells Salk to go find a sailor if he's that way. Salk said that this wasn't what he meant, but of course Kalam knew that because he just wanted to fling darts. Salk then admits that he, that he likes to be liked by someone he admires. Kalam swung on the man and asked what was so damn admirable. 
Why are you so eager for a partnership? Salk admits that killing the Empress won't be easy, but just imagine succeeding. He wants to be a part of that right there alongside you. In a lower tone, Kalam told Salk that this was madness. There was no chance that he would dare join him. Salk told the assassin to quit dissembling. Kalam changed the subject and asked what sorcery held the ship. Elan's eyes widened and then shook his head. He explained that he looked all over Pormqual's ship and found nothing. Kalam asked if it could be the ship itself. Elan said that it wasn't something he could determine, but guessed that they were being tracked by someone in a warren. Someone who wants to make go with the cargo. Kalam was silent for a long time and then reveals to Salk that the assassin has contacts in the city. An unexpected con- convergence ahead of schedule. Salk said this was excellent and where they should meet them. Kalam said there's a black heart in Malaz City, one that all occupants try to ignore. That is where we will wait for our allies. Salk took a guess and said that it was Smiley's, once owned by the man who would one day be emperor. Kalam stared at the man in wonder. Kalam finally reveals that it's, it's the dead house, but not inside, at the gates. But by all means, Salk is free to explore the grounds. Salk responded that it could that it could be some time before Kalam's friends appeared, and perhaps he would explore the grounds. Salk at this point didn't see the grin that appeared on Kalam's face. What a what an interesting section. It's just at the beginning, it's like both of them are playing fast and loose with each other. And it just ends up being this like really random conversation. And it's like every time a question gets brought up by either one of them, the other just avoids an answer or just gives a very vague reply. Uh, And then just the conversation just keeps switching to like another topic one after the other, you know, I just, I thought it was weird. And uh, it like nailed it on the head that they, neither one of them trust each other. Which I don't either. I don't trust Salk any further than you could throw him, you know? Yeah, he's uh, he's a little slippery, isn't he? Like an eel. I guess. Yeah, not re- not what I was implying, but yeah, I guess it works. No, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. What if Salk is corrupt? I don't think there's any way that that yeah. is the case. Because no. we find out who he is here. I, well, that was in this chapter, wasn't it? Yeah, at the very end. Yeah um i don't i don't know did you i mean what did you think of that conversation that they had just uh very like deflective right like right right like you said i mean neither one of them really wants to answer a question it's just it's almost like it's talking just for the sake of talking right yeah and you know even when alan makes a statement that he likes the assassin kalam again to your point gets like deflective and says that well i'm not into you like that so go find a sailor that is you know, <laughs> insinuating right. some type of homosexual relationship, but Salk is just like, you know what I meant. Like, that is not what I meant, you know. But, right. Yeah. But do you think Salk is purely just trying to flatter Kalam to like keep his guard down? Or do you think that it's legit? Do you think that he like admires Kalam, or do you think it's just bullshit? Do you think he's just spewing it to spew it? I kind of feel like it's a little bit of both, but I I don't know. It, to me, it feels hard to say for sure because 
he just seems so untrustworthy. It just wouldn't make sense that he's really trying to flatter him. But then again, who the fuck knows? I, I mean, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, we might have to come back to that one, but it's all good. Um, yeah, just thought, huh? I was just asking if you had thoughts on that. Maybe that's why you want to come back to it later. Yeah, I think we might have to swing back to that one later. Okay. And now I've all of a sudden forgotten what the question was. Uh, is he? Is there weight behind his flattering of Kalam, or is it just just a show? Um, I think that there is weight. But I can't really go further until we read that section. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, but, and this is kind of another one that uh, we'll probably have to wait until a later section. But, you know, when Elon tells him that he looked all over Pormqual's ship and found nothing, um, I don't believe any of what he's telling Kalab about the Warren that is holding the ship. You know what I mean? I kind of did. You believe him? A little bit. Even after reading the one of the last chapters? Maybe after hearing what you have to say, I'll change my mind. I guess I, I don't remember what you're talking about right now. Oh, so like when uh, Kalam looks at him and he's just like, what's holding the ship? Like what sorcery held the ship? And then Elon just explains that uh, he looked all over Pormquil's ship and found nothing. Kalam asked if it was the ship itself. Ivan said that it wasn't something he could determine, but guessed that they were being tracked by someone in a warren. I, when I read it, I didn't believe it. I, you know, but that's what quick. That's what quick Ben told Kalam too. It was a possibility in the in the uh, last was it last chapter? Maybe the one before when Kalam uh, breaks his whatever his thing was, and then uh, talks to quick Ben. Quick Ben said it was a. Uh, you know, if there wasn't somebody on the ship or somebody nearby in a, in a really rare warren for mortals, I th- I think was how it was worded, but he said that might be a possibility anyways. Right. And, and uh, if Salk yeah. is saying, I mean, Salk, he, Salk wasn't a part of that conversation. And if he's coming to the same, somewhat of a, you know, a similar mind, then I, I think there could be truth to him saying that he looked throughout the ship. Maybe, not definitively one way or the other, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't believe him. All right, then we could talk about that later. Sure, he's definitely not the most trustworthy person for sure. So I, I mean, everything you got to kind of take with a grain of salt. Right. Exactly. Um. So smileys. I didn't think we were going to get this until uh, like later on in the series, but it happened right here in the second book. Because when we talked to Mora and and Lee the first time, and we're like, "Where did you get the you know the name of your podcast?" and they were all like, "Well, it's something that happens later on in the book." I just or later on in the series, and I didn't think that it was something that uh, we were going to get in the next book we read. So yeah, and we didn't get a ton on it, but it was the name was at least dropped. Right. Yeah. So it. Um, yeah, I just I didn't think we were going to get introduced to it for a while but um yeah yeah i I got i had a smile on my face when i read that yeah so maura and lee we found your bar (laughs) we're coming over for a drink right yes exactly i might just have a water for now oh yeah 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 you had lots (laughs) of drinks last night yeah yeah um and then 
And then when, you know, Salk talks and explains that Smiley's, you know, uh, Smiley's is itself not the dead house, but, you know, it's like a bar close to it is what I gathered. Is that what you got to? Uh, I guess I didn't even really think about it if, if it was close in proximity or not. Gotcha. Well, it, um, you know, Salk is explaining that Smiley's was once owned by the man who would one day be emperor, which I'm assuming is Kellenbed. Right. Um, and there's a, a part in this section where Kalam stares at the man in wonder. And Kalam has a thought that Salk was either being like cynical or he really didn't know about the dead house. So I feel like no matter what Salk does, I feel like he's just always kind of keeping Kalam on an edge and insecure. Gotta keep him guessing. Right. Um and then the last thing that I had was Salk didn't see the grin that appeared on Kalam's face when they were talking about uh, Salk exploring the grounds of the dead house. So I'm assuming that Kalam knows something about the yard. And if it's anything like what we read about Tremolor, it's going to take anything that is considered a threat. Salk being a mage could lead the Azath to feel threatened and imprison Salk. And then this thought is what makes Kalam grin. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, I guess, did you have any final thoughts on this section? Uh, no, I did not, sir. Yeah, I thought it was a good <laughs> section. It was a nice way to intro, um, you know, kind of Salk and, and Kalam coming to Malaz City. So kind of more or less the, the sailing journey is coming to an end. For the moment, anyways. Right. But yeah, outside of that, I didn't have anything else. I don't know if you want to roll into your section here. Sure. Uh, yeah. Drastic change here from your setting. So For sure. Poost grabbed the latch with both hands, feet planted on the door, trying to force it open, rambling incoherently. Mapo stepped over Icarium and pulled Poost off the door. Fiddler could hear Icarium trying to get to the door. I think uh, I mixed up a name there. Uh, must have been Mapo. I don't know why I typed Icarium because Icarium's unconscious at this point. Fiddler could hear Mapo trying to get the door open, but his attention was affixed on the cloud of blood flies. Tremolor resisted them. Blind st- stood next to Fiddler with his hackles raised. The other four hounds reappeared running towards the yard's gate. The shadow cast by the blood flies covered them like a blanket. Absalar said the door either opens at the touch or does not open at all. She told Mapo to stand back so they could all try. Crocus yelled out that Icarium was starting to wake up. Mapo said it was the threat that was waking him, and this wasn't a great time. Poost disagreed and said there was no better time. Absalar told Crocus to try opening the door. He would be last before Fiddler. Fiddler told Mapo to wake Icarium, or it was all over. Mapo said it was a great risk this close to Tremolor. Icarium's body jolted back to life and a sound emanated from him. Gaining his feet, he unsheathed the sword. The hounds and swarm of divers reached the gate at the same time. Chaos ensued. Trees erupted, and the ground was angry in its heavings. Blind left Fiddler's side to be with the other hounds. Fiddler grinned inwardly, thinking, not just Shadow Throne for treachery, how could the house of an Azath resist the hounds of Shadow? Absalar told him to try the door. Fiddler was pushed against the door by a pair of hands. He turned back and was able to see Mapo with his arms wrapped around a mostly unaware Icarium, so far managing to hold him back, as the sound still came from him 
and the power intensified. Pressure held him to the door. He could hear the wood whisper its promise of annihilation. He struggled to get his hand to the latch. He could hear the hounds howl in the distance, but was drowned out by Akarim's own rage. He felt the whole house tremble. He pushed one more time, willing for success. Instead, he rolled a one, failure. He heard a new noise. The blood flies drew nearer. He thought Akarium will awaken. There was no other choice and their deaths will be the least of it. He hoped Akarium was thorough in his destruction for the sake of the rest of the world. He felt a stab of pain and thought it was the blood flies, but it was Moby racing down his arm. Moby raced for the door, touched it, and Fiddler tumbled in. He rolled onto his back and heard something snap and break in the process. Then they heard Akarium and his keening. Tremolor shook. Mapo still held Akarium, still struggling in his grip, but he finally subsided. Fiddler looked around to see if everyone was there. Crocus had drug in Poost. Fiddler asked Poost about the hounds. He said they escaped, and even in their betrayal, they still threw power into the divers. Still threw their power in, into the divers. Poost asked if he could smell Tremolor's satisfaction. That divers had been taken. Absalar said the bet betrayal may have been instinct, given how much danger it was in. That and the shadows penchant for treachery. Poost scowled and said that was a lie. They played true. Crocus said there was a first time for everything and that he was happy the door opened for Fiddler. Fiddler said he didn't open it. It was Moby. And where was he? He was in here somewhere. Crocus said he hadn't seen him and asked if he was sure he made it in. Fiddler was sure and said he must have went deeper into the house. Post squealing said he seeks the gate, the path of hands. Someone tried to tell him he was only a familiar, but he cut them off. Lies! That disgusting baccarat is a soul taken, you fool! Absalar told him to chill out, and there was no gate here that would offer a shapeshifter anything, and pointed out that what Fiddler had initially landed on when he fell into the house was its keeper. Each Azath has a guardian, and she'd always assumed they were immortal. Whatever this used to be, it wasn't human. It had too many joints and would have been very flexible. Mapo said it was Fork Rule Assail. Absalar said that was the least known of the elder races, not even hinted at in any Seven Cities legend she had heard. Looking around, she said the layout was almost identical. Crocus asked to what? She said the dead house in Malaz City. They heard some scampering feet. A moment later, they saw Moby, and he ran into Crocus's arms. Poost asked Mapo if Icarium was dead. He had saw him squeezing Icarium. No, Mapo replied, only unconscious and not likely to wake up soon. Poost told him to let the Azath have him. They were within Tremolor and no longer needed him. Mapo only said no, and Poost called him a fool. They heard a bell ring outside and everyone looked at each other. Everyone looked at each other disbelievingly. Why a merchant bell? Crocus came to the realization it was a merchant's bell from Darujasan. The door easily opened from the inside. They looked out and saw the tangled roots in the yard. Outside the yard were three huge carriages, each pulled by nine horses. A roundish figure stood outside in silks, raising a hand towards Fiddler. He said he could come no closer but assured them it was safe and he seeked the one named fiddler fiddler asked why the man said he had a gift it was an expensive one quickly thrown together and that they should complete the transact transaction quickly as well 
Crocus said he recognized the carriages and even knew who made them, though he'd never seen them this big before. He was certain they were Daru made. The man introduced himself as Karpolin Demisand of the Trigal Trade Guild, and this was and this run was so memorable they would never forget it, and hopefully never have to repeat it. A woman appeared with a crate, and Karpolin said it was compliments of a certain bridge burner mage. Karpolin apologized for the hastiness, but they must be off. Fiddler said there was no need to be sorry and wished him safe travels. He only had one question. Did the mage say where the contents of the crate came from? Karpolin said he did give an answer to that. The streets of Darugistan. Fiddler asked if there were any handling instructions, to which he replied that he was instructed to not jostle the contents too much. However, some of the journey was rather rough. Some of the contents may be broken. Fiddler said they were not, and he would have to trust him on that. So, the uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but the the uh, opening sequence here where Poost is like grabbing the latch, I just imagine almost like a cartoon where you know a cartoon character is trying to get through a door. You know, you got your feet on the door and you're trying to pull. And like in reality, I feel like this was a push door, not a pull, <laughs> not a pull door. Um, but everything just uh, all this just seemed to be. It felt like a slow motion action sequence to me. You know, where especially where. Uh, Mapo's got to carry him. He's trying to hold him back, and Fiddler's trying to open the door and getting these creepy whispers, you know, from the house. Uh, I, I don't know. It was pretty eerie. It was really eerie, and I mean, just the amount of desperation, right? Like everybody's trying to get this door open because there's a ton of blood flies just about ready to wreak havoc on them. Yeah, and then so there's I don't know about you. But I had to read it a couple times before it made sense. But where, you know, so the hounds and the divers are reaching the gate at the same time. And it said that the divers, the shadow covered them like a blanket. And it just like, I'm like, oh, like, so they're covered in them. And then, I mean, it was written plainly enough. It just took a couple times for it to register in my mind that it's no, it's just the shadow cast down on them. That's covering them like a blanket. Um, but yeah, kind of threw me for a little bit of a loop. But it, do you feel like that uh, that part is ominous a little bit? Because I feel like every time a shadow is brought up, I think of Shadow Throne and like, do they live in shadows? Do they, you know, kind of like Poost, right? Where he's in a room, but he's not in a room, you know, like he's able to hide within the shadows. So I just kind of give that that uh, ability to anybody of shadow. Um, I mean, it's definitely ominous. I don't know if there's, I guess I don't know if I felt like there was anything more to it in this particular instance, other than just, you know, being a descriptor. Sure. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Moby, Moby saves the day here. Why do you, do you have thoughts as to why he was the one that was able to open the door? No, not at all. I really don't understand that part. Um, as to why he was able to open the door. I mean, at this point, they don't know that it was that it was Moby that opened the door. Um, well, Fiddler knows, right? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I it does all happen pretty fast. Um, so yeah, I guess at this point, the others don't know until Fiddler says something. Right. Um, I guess Absalar says like when they're talking about the um, the Forkrul sale being the guardian of the Azath. I'm assuming that. Uh, 
you know, if each Azath needs a guardian, like Absalar says, my question is, is the, the Finnist house in Darugistan, it opened up to Ralic without any question. So do you think that it was because it needed a guardian since I it was so new? Maybe, but I don't know that. Yeah, I, I don't know on that. I feel like he's probably not going to be stuck in it, but I guess we just don't know for sure yet. Right. And I guess my other question is, is like, if from what I understand, these dead houses are just a way to like portal to another one, do they all connect together or or are they just like grouped? Like Tremelor and Malaz City are the only ones that connect together, but they don't connect to like the one in Jerugistan or the one wherever in the other part of the world, you know? I don't, yeah, it's something we don't know yet. I feel like they would probably all be interconnected. Um, just, I don't remember if it was, well, it's in a later section. Um, maybe, you know, we can maybe bring that up then. All right. Sounds good to me. Um, I used it once in uh, my summary here, but the word keening was used a few times. And I didn't really know what that had meant as far as like describing a sound. And, and I know you had uh in our notes here on the side you had i know you had a thought so if you wanted to yeah explain that well from what i understand about the word keening is that it's like the sorrowful whale like someone who is grieving and i think that maybe this is the point where carrium has delivered his memories and, and i'm not sure they are pleasant to relive you know no, probably not no right so, him wailing as if he's grieving and you know i just kind of you know go back to the you know stereotypical like you know your life flashes before your eye before your eyes type of thing and he's just being shown a film slide of all of his memories and it's just causing him this just agonizing pain so much that he's sour he's keening he's wailing uh, as if he's grieving he's making the sounds of of grief gotcha yeah it was just uh it was an interesting way to describe it and so i wasn't i didn't really know what to make of that i feel like when i think of the word keening i think of like the sound of like swords would make when they like clang up against each other okay you know or like the sound it makes when it's coming out of the sheath like that i don't know just kind of that on like repeat yeah pretty much um and i guess we, uh, I know in the last chapter, we were wondering where Carpolin was going after leaving Coltane. So we got our answer to that. Well, and we guessed it, right? We both oh, yeah, predicted. I did not remember that we both predicted that, or you did. Um, but that's awesome. I'm glad we got uh, an answer to that. And you were right. It's always fun. But yeah, I'm not doubting you. I just, I didn't remember that either one of us predicted that. That's all. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we totally called it because you you brought it i just edited the episode so that's the only reason i i remember it makes sense then yeah so we we both were like we both asked like oh well i wonder where he's going and we both we both had a very nice laughable moment um because we actually agreed on something which yeah doesn't always happen does it no not at all um (laughs) which is weird because i feel like in gardens of the moon we pretty much agreed on everything and now in Dead House, it's like shifting a little bit. Yeah, a little more than a little bit, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on the Fork Roll of Sale here? I feel like this whole gatekeeper 
uh, was just un- unexpected, you know? Uh, I do not think that is the the gatekeeper or the watcher or whatever. Guardian. Gotcha. You just think it is just someone who ended up passing away in Tremolor? Yeah. Um, maybe even they, they came from a different dead house into that one and died there. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, do you think that the fork rule of sale are the, the invaders that like, I don't know. Do you remember like Mappo explaining the story of a city and the, like the shoulder woman of his tribe were explaining that, you know, there was the right hand of the Talan and then the other hand was this unknown power, which I think is the Jag Hut based on the previous chapter as we, as the mysteriousness of the South of the Vathar was explained between the, you know, the, the war between the uh, Amass and, and the Jag Hut. And as far as like Mapo and his story, do you think that the Fork Rule of Sale are the ones responsible for coming in? Like, I guess if the nameless ones are like priestess of the Azath, do you think it's because of the Fork Rule of Sale? Do you think that they like made claim on the on the Azath and like you know the Azath is their god or whatever? I I don't know. I mean, I just I find it interesting that the Fork Rule of Sale, which we you know like these guys don't know anything about. So I guess can you see anything that's been explained that would tie them into it? I guess I do not see anything that would tie them into it um, at this point. Gotcha. So this is definitely still a a big mystery. I yeah, I would say so. I I think so, yes. Because Absalar explains that there's no there's no maybe that's strong, that there's little evidence of the Fork Rule sale in any of the stories surrounding the Seven Cities continent. Right. Yeah, like I think yeah, they're not even mentioned. So that's kind of where I think, you know, this particular one. Must have came from like another dead house, and maybe the guardian in here killed it. I don't know, or somebody else killed it and left. Very possible. That's very true. Yeah, um, dude, just God, what a whirlwind of a section this one was. You know, like uh, ugh, you leave I, off in the last chapter there. with them like stuck at the at the dead house at the gate, and uh, you know it doesn't come back to it. So you're like left in this little cliffhanger. So. I'm glad that the next chapter uh, got us got us that answer because yeah that we didn't have to wait long yeah yeah that but. sucks to have to wait sometimes mm-hmm. oh yeah we know that and with only four chapters left it's uh it, it's hard it's really hard to resist temptation it is yeah but we're doing good yeah we'll I move so. on here and uh I, you know this next one will be pretty quick here I think. Yeah. Crocus closed the door as Fiddler walked inside uh, with the contents of the crate. He set the crate down and opened the lid. He praised Quick Ben as he counted seven cussers, 13 masonry crackers, and four flamers. Crocus asked Fid how the merchant was able to get here from Darugistan. Fiddler told the lad that he had no idea. Fiddler tells the party that he feels good. <laughs> Optimism was said by Poost with a snarl. While that foul monkey relieves himself on the lad's lap, Crocus held Moby away from him and observed the stream of piss hit the flagstones beneath. 
Krakus scolds Moby. Poost interjects and says, soul taken. Absalar said that it was a momentary lapse, as the creature may have realized what's about. Or it has an odd sense of humor. Poost demands what Absalar is babbling on about. She explains that Moby thought he had found the path, and thought that what called him here was ancient promise of ascendancy. Moby had a right to think that. She explained that the Boakral in Crocus's hands was in fact demonic. In its true form, it would hold Crocus. Crocus blinked in astonishment at the prospect of his uncle's familiar being a demon. Fit had been packing the Morath munitions into his pack. He rose and told everyone that Quick Ben believed there was a portal somewhere in here, a Warren's Gate. Poos could be heard saying, linking the house. Poos admits that this cunning mage of theirs has impressed him, and he should have been a servant of Shadow. Fid has a quick thought about Quick Ben and him being a servant of Shadow once. Fiddler says to everyone that they should find that portal. Absalar smiled and interrupted to say that it was down the left passageway to the two doors. The one to the left takes them to the tower. Fiddler stared at her for a second and then thought that it was her borrowed memories that showed them the way. Moby led the way, revealing a return of nerve and something like possessive pride. In the left-hand passage, in a clove set in the wall, stood a ten-foot set of armor. Moby paused to touch the boot before moving on. Upon opening the door, they came upon the tower's ground floor. A stone staircase spiraled up from the center. At the foot of the stairs lay another body, a young, dark-skinned woman who looked as if she had been placed there an hour before. She was in her underclothes, the armor she once wore, nowhere to be seen. Vicious wounds crisscrossed her body. Absalar approached the girl and knelt down. She explains that she knows this girl. Relic is heard growling, eh? Absalar explains that it was Dancer's mortal memory. She explains that this girl was Desem Ultor's daughter. Desem recovered her from Hood after Hood was done using her and brought her up here. Fiddler said before breaking his vow to Hood. Absalar said before Desem broke his vow to Hood. Absalar simply said that she knew. They were all silent. Silent. Mapo shifted his weight of a carrium in his arm. Absalar looked up at the stairs and said that if Dancer's memory served her correctly, the portal was upstairs. Fiddler swung to the others and asked Mapo, asked if Mapo was joining them. Mapo said maybe, not all the way, assuming there's a way to leave the warren when one when one so chooses. Fiddler chimed in and said that it was that it was quite the assumption. The trail just shrugged. Crocus asked Iskarol Poost if he would join them. He said he would, as there could be another opportunity for, for betrayal. Fiddler met Crocus's eyes and told the lad to keep an eye on him. Crocus looked down at Moby and wondered out loud how one said goodbye to a boa crawl. Pooh suggests a swift kick to the backside. Fiddler teased the high priest to try, to try that th with this one. Crocus approached Moby and stated that the familiar out there fighting battles in the storms they couldn't see. He was protecting them. Fiddler agreed, and Poost explained that there were ulterior motives. Crocus gathered Moby in his arms, no shame in the tears rolling down his face. Fiddler looked to the staircase and told Crocus that it would do no good to draw it out. Crocus nodded and told Moby that he would find a way to visit. 
Apslar chimes in and says that we won't that we don't know if he'll be lonely as there are other houses, other guardians. Crocus nodded and set the familiar down. He then explained then that at least there weren't any plates or cups lying around, as Moby didn't do well with them. Crocus smiled and then placed a hand on Moby's head and they said, Let's go. Ah, Moby. Moby. Little Moby. Little Moby. Um, I thought it was funny that uh like Moby is just I would imagine like sitting on Crocus's arms like you would like a bird would perch and Moby is just pissing on his chest and <laughs> the piss is just streaming down his clothes and then hitting the flagstones uh, beneath their feet. I don't know. It made me chuckle when I read it. Yeah, it was a funny moment for sure. Yeah. Um, but we find out Crocus is a demon, not Crocus. Moby is a demon. My question is, like, when the fuck did that happen? Has Moby always been a demon? Like, even with Uncle Mammoth? Or is it, uh, you know, is it one of those things where, like, he, like Pearl, the demon that they fought on the rooftops, uh, the, or fought the Tissiani on the, the rooftops of Darugisan? Or is it the demon that um, Anna Amanda Rake was fighting at the end of Gardens of the Moon? Um, I'm thinking that it's probably not, because... From what I remember, those those two demons were killed. I don't know if I believe Poost. I think he's just spouting shit out. Well, Poost is saying that he's uh, he, that he's a soul taken, and that he's not actually a Bakrala, that he's soul taken. But it was Absalar who told Krakus that he was a demon. I don't know. Why would she just bring that up now? I don't know. I don't think he's a demon. Maybe he is. I don't know. It just seems suspicious. Well, I mean, I guess... We don't know, right? Can demons soul take and deiver? I mean, I'm assuming it's just like possession, right? I don't have an answer. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I still feel like, I, I feel like Moby is Uncle Mammoth. So you think? But then Poos I wonder. Then I wonder why why he wouldn't just change out of him, unless he can't for some, you know, whatever yeah. reason he can't. Or maybe, but, uh, maybe they're both right. Maybe it's Mammoth's soul back from the dead maybe he came back as a demon and soul took moby i don't know this seems like too much to me you know like why do we need like a a, a double double disguise i don't know i i guess the great question i have no idea these are just of course me just sending things out into left field of course but i i don't know i i guess part of me wants to really know because I feel like this is the end of Moby. Like, when when is there going to be another opportunity for Moby to be explained? Like, just in casual conversation as they travel wherever they're going to go, you know? I mean, to drop the fact that he's a demon, or potentially a demon, in what I am imagining the last chapter of this book that we're ever going to see him again, and then you're just left to wonder? Like, it doesn't feel like a clo like a closure at all around Moby. I don't think we'll be done with him maybe in, in this book, but I, I don't know. It's so hard to like try to explain, but I, th I, I guess this could be the end of a story. We'll just have to see what happens, but I feel like there could be a little bit more there, especially with where he's at least for the time being. I don't know, man. 
no idea. <laughs> Just but I mean, do you do you feel closure with Moby, or do you feel like there's things left unresolved there? Uh, I guess for the time being, I feel enough closure. I mean, it's definitely gives an answer to a lot of things. You know, Moby now from Moby back in the the beginning of this book. You know, we just thought he was just a, a familiar that followed Krakus. But really, if you think about it, it was because they were conveniently going in the direction of the Path of Hands. So going back to the beginning of the book, Moby wasn't really just hanging out with Krakus because he felt like it. It's because they were converging with the Path of Hands. So Path of Less Traveled, right? But I don't know why a creature on Genevacus would be able to sense something like that. I don't know. It's a weird it's a weird feeling to just think there's enough there and then be unsure at the same time. I, yeah, that's fair. I don't know. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be like terribly upset if like we don't get mention of Moby again. I feel like he will come up eventually, but or they go back to see him and he's in his demon form or some shit, you know, sure, yeah. in a later book or something like that. Because I don't know. I feel like dead houses, they're they're kind of like a they're an important means of travel. So I think that we'll we'll see them a lot throughout the series. Maybe not like a lot, but you know, a fair amount. I'm sure it'll play some sort, you know, they're gonna play some sort of role. But can as we continue on. Yeah, exactly. Um I guess the other thing that I wanted to talk about was I really feel bad for Mapo in this section. And when they're talking about basically Desem's daughter, right? It it sounds like it sounds like to me that Mapo can almost relate to Desem. But I think the difference is Mapo wasn't going to just dump a carrium here. I think I think that he's just extremely loyal to a carrium and is going to I guess do whatever he can. I don't even really know what I'm talking about here, but it had yeah, there's with the reasons why Desem brought his daughter to Tremolor and then just left her there. He's definitely a good a good friend, right? Like he's not gonna I mean, especially Poos wants him just to chuck him out the door and let him be taken. And he's like, no, dude, I'm not doing that. Like, even though that's probably maybe like the right, right might not even be the right word, but um, it's the thing he maybe should do so that he doesn't go nuts and, you know, murder more cities. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but he's not going to do that. He feels like he, it seems like he feels like he can control him. Yeah. But maybe it's the loyalty of a good friend that uh, makes the anger subside and he becomes normal or something, you know. That's a good thought. Like, it's something that he's never been given, his loyalty. I didn't think of that. Everybody he's ever been companioned with, he ends up killing or they end up leaving or whatever the case is, you know. But right. just, like, sticking it out to the very end. Like, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just thoughts as we're talking about Mapo's loyalty here so yeah he's a good friend gotta like Mapo. yeah i also kind of feel bad for Krakus here because he's he's essentially saying goodbye to moby which is in an essence kind of the last thing from his uncle that he has you know and yeah i don't know it's kind of like like getting rid of that fam family heirloom that 
has no use, but still reminds you of whoever said person is, you know, uh, it's right. really challenging to get rid of that stuff. Some are successful, some are not. And, you know, not either answer is right or wrong, but, you know, in Crocus's, he knows he has to move on. He knows he has to leave Moby here. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, I mean, I kind of look at it as almost as like, you know, you're saying goodbye to a pet. Right. You know, it's, it's just a part of your family. And, but, you know, maybe if you're moving or something and you can't take it with, or, you know, if you got to put it down, like those goodbyes suck. So yes, they definitely do. It's not easy. But it's nice to get like a, like a, a tender moment here in all this. I mean, really, a lot of the stuff we've seen in this part of the story has been a lot of like, I mean, you boil it down. It's basically been a horror story, right? Oh, for sure. That's, yeah. Everything that led up to the Zath. Yeah. For the yeah. house. So now we get, we get a, a change of pace, something, you know, a, a different emotion. Absolutely. Any, any thoughts on Desem's daughter here? Like why she's just like hanging out here. And also going back to your theory about, tremolor or the dead houses being a like a time vessel right they say that she appears as if she's only been there for an hour but i think that you and i both know that she hasn't been there for an hour yeah i mean they say it happened years ago right i don't know what to make of that yet but i think you're right i think i think that I think Icarium has something to do with the dead houses. I think that he is potentially somebody who has created a way of time travel, not time travel, but a way of like traveling to other places because it messes with time, you know, like it just doesn't seem to exist within it or it's slowed down a whole bunch. I mean, you know, if, if who knows how many years she's been sitting there um, and it, if, you know, it's, only appears it's been an hour or less or maybe you know a couple hours i don't know i i don't know what to make of her being there what happened that letter there i guess i i don't remember what from reading the chapter i thought it just they talked about the god that deceem served i don't remember them saying hood i guess distinctively but maybe i remember I just, that i remember okay. it was hood okay yeah, um, but it's. I guess it's nice to know the reason why he doesn't serve Hood anymore. Um, and I get like a you know a Greek mythology type of feel with Persephone um, being taken by Hades for half the year um, type of vibe. I guess it kind of sounds like Desem Altar's daughter and Hood were. I don't know what type of use Hood would have for his daughter, but. I don't know if it was like a like a Persephone and Hades type of thing, or if it was just a like a one time thing that her daughter or his daughter could do. You know, open the door. Or, yeah, I don't know. There's there's just so many new questions here. <laughs> I I guess I kind of was wondering if it was you know a similar deal to like Absalar. You know, was she used kind of like that? Oh, I didn't even think of that. Like where Hood possessed her to do whatever he was going to do. Yeah. Very well could be, sir. Very well could be. Just, I mean, that's what popped into my mind. I like it better than what I was spewing. Maybe we'll find out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> Somewhere in this story. Um, but yeah, I guess, 
that's all I really had. You know, it's it's funny because all these sections seem really, really linear and transitional. Um, but they're also adding in new questions and new discoveries, but they're also kind of like starting to tie things up a little bit. Yeah. But I agree with you. I'm ready to move on if you are. All right. We got a short one here. The Bacharel watched the group climb the stairs. A moment later, there was a midnight flash from above and they were gone. Moby cocked his head, listening, but there was no sound in the chamber. He sat and waited for a few minutes, waiting, playing with his tail before scampering off down the hall. Eventually, he stopped before the suit of armor. The massive helm tilted forward with a creak. A raspy voice spoke. I am pleased my solitude is at an end, little one. Tremolor welcomes you with all its heart, even if you've made a mess on the hallway floor. He's talking about the pee-pee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this has got to be the Guardian. Yeah, I, I would agree so. I would agree as well. So you think that this was, uh, I mean, I guess what 10 feet tall. Like, what do you think this is? Is this another demon or is this, uh, you know? Well, what uh, what the fuck is the guy's name that's with uh, Fellison? What do you mean, what guy? I can't remember the two Tobl guys Tobl that are with her. Toblakai. I mean, I guess we never get, I mean, because he's like nine feet tall or something. Yeah, he's pretty tall. I guess I don't remember specifically. I don't think, it doesn't sound like they would have any need for armor, but that's the only other thing I could think of that's like roughly that size that we've come across so far. Um, yeah, I don't know what the hell it is. I don't know that there's somebody in, like, do you think there's somebody in the suit of armor? Or do you think it's just possessed something? The armor itself. Like yeah. the house just uses it to talk to whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know what I think if there's a being inside the armor or if it's just animated on its own. Yeah. I guess I'm not sure either, but uh, you know, again, how do we know that Moby is going to be the new guardian? Or well, I guess we don't. Yeah. Maybe. And this is kind of why I think we'll probably see more of them because obviously like the rest of the group, is probably under the impression that Moby is going to be the guardian. I right. think you and I probably don't think that. Um, the advantage we have as a reader, you know, we see this other stuff. So I don't, I don't know what he's going to do here. Yeah, I don't know, and I don't even remember in the last section where it said that Moby, where the others thought Moby would be the guardian either. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, well, somebody, I thought somebody said they maybe they were just thinking it was a possibility. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It just, this part is definitely weird. And I want to know what Tremolor, the suit of armor and Moby, like what makes them, what gives, what audacity Tremolor sees in all of this to allow Moby in, but no, none of the others. Yeah. So hard to say. I don't know. All right. Well, maybe there's some answers left when, um, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I'm guessing and predicting that Palam and Fiddler are going to meet up, and I'm sure that there'll be a recollection of tales. So maybe Krakus will talk about Moby to Fiddler or to Kalam. But I think I could see that happening, whether it does or doesn't, I guess. We only got one way to find out. That's true. All right. Well, um, 
I guess I don't have anything else for that very small section. Um, I feel just as confused about Moby than I did before, but there's definitely something there. Yeah, nothing really did get cleared up. So, all right. Dust and gravel sprayed Duiker's shield as a Wiccan horse warrior struck the ground and slid towards his feet. Young, the crow looked peaceful. Duiker stepped over the body, his short sword ready. Riders wheeled in front of the historian. Arrows sped through the gaps between them. Flying through the air, he raised his shield to deflect the one heading for his face. The arrow hit the shield with such force that it sent the shield back into his chin and lip, splitting them both. Tarxian cavalry had broken through and was only moments away from severing the remaining squads from the rest of the company. The crow counterattack had been savage and costly. Worst of all, as Duker made his way forward, it may have failed. The infantry squads had been broken apart and had reformed into four groups. Less than 20 of the crow horse warriors remained upright, each one of them surrounded by Tarx- Tarxians hacking at them. Everywhere horses writhed and screamed on the ground. The back end of a Tarxian cavalry horse nearly knocked Duiker to the ground. Stepping around, he managed to plunge a sword into the thigh of the Tarxian rider. Talwar slashed down and got stuck in Duiker's shield. The historian got low, bringing the Talwar with him. He freed his short sword from the rider's thigh and hacked and slashed at the hip of the rider. The horse sidestepped and the rider was now out of reach. He blinked away sweat and grit and then then moved forward again towards the largest knot of his own infantry. It had been three days since the Kundral tribe had given them a reprieve at the Valley of Sanamon, at the Valley before Sanamon. Their unexpected allies had closed the battle, pursuing their rival tribes before slipping off to go home as they have not been seen since. The mauling the Kundral had done had sent Corbolo Dom into a rage. For now, the attacks were relentless, a running battle over 40 hours long, and with no sign of slowing down, the chain of dogs was struck from all sides, from behind, at times two directions at once, sometimes three. What weapons could not achieve, exhaustion did. Soldiers were falling to the ground, their hearts failing. The scenes Duker witnessed were beyond horror, even beyond his ability to comprehend. He reached the infantry, even as the other groups managed to close the link up. They started a wheeling blade formation that no horse could challenge. The wheel spun, slowly returning the company that still held the line on the west flank of the chain. Duker moved with them forming the outer ring, delivering killing blows to whatever wounded soldier the wheel trampled. A few moments later, the wheel reached the line. The wheel broke and then melted into the company on the west flank of the chain of dogs. The Wiccan horse riders surged southwards. Duker made his way through the company till he was in clear space. He lowered his arms and spat blood. In front of him was a procession of refugees. Hundreds of faces turned in his direction watching the infantry behind the historian thinning. It was all that laid between them and the slaughter. Their faces were expressionless, driven to a place beyond emotion. They were part of a tidal flow where no ebb was possible. Dropping too far back would be fatal, so they stumbled on, clutching the last of their possessions, their children. Two figures approached Duiker from the vanguard position. The historian stared at them blankly as if he should know their faces. 
but every face had become a stranger's face. Lal called out, historian. Hearing Lal's voice had snapped Duiker out of his fugue. Water was given to the historian as he drank the cool water, ignoring the pain of his split lip. Lal explains that they've reached the Galen Plain. The other person was Duiker's nameless marine. He saw that she wavered where she stood. He noticed a puncture wound on her left shoulder. Their eyes met. The historian saw nothing still alive in those beautiful eyes. Lull is heard saying that Coltane wants the historian. Duiker is surprised to hear that Coltane is still alive and probably wants the chain around his neck. He goes to retrieve the glass vial and is interrupted by Lull explaining that Coltane wants the historian because they've run into a tribe from the Sanath Odin, and so far they are just watching. Duker wonders if the rebellion is a less certain thing down here in the south. The battles, the sound of battles diminished. The sound of battle diminished, and they started to walk alongside the refugees. Duker asks what tribe, and more importantly, how does it concern him? Lull explained that the fist has reached a decision. Something in the way Lull spoke those words sent a chill through Duker. Duker has a thought that Coltane leads an army that won't die. Over 30 hours and not one refugee has died. 5,000 soldiers split it, spitting in the face of every god. Lull asked what the historian knew of the tribes as close to Aaron. Duker said that they held no love for Aaron. Lull asked if it was worse for them under the empire. Duker grunted and explained that it was no better. However, the empire understands borderlands and the different needs of those living in the countryside. Anyway. Payment across tribal land is prompt and generous. Duiker explained that Coltane should know this. Lull said that the fist does. It was just more for him to be convinced. Duiker looked over at the marching refugees. His thoughts traveled to what Coltane's decision would be. Noticing Lull's reaction, he assumes that Coltane's officers bulk and flinch with uncertainty. Duiker asked Lull what he could say to him. Lull responded that there wasn't a choice left. Duker stated that he could answer that himself. Lull said that he dare not. It's the children, you see. It's all they have left. The last thing they have. Duker's nod was enough to cut the need for Lull to say anything more. Duker thought to himself that 5,000 soldiers would give their lives for this. But was this some kind of romantic foolishness? Duker swung his gaze to the nameless Marine and found himself meeting those remarkable eyes. She shrugged and said that we too blind that we are too blind to see we defend their dignity there simple as that duker thought to himself that he would accept that cold criticism never underestimate a soldier pretty brutal like section i was not i was not anticipating uh the amount of stress that duker is is in at the beginning of the section you know it starts off with a crow horse warrior dying at his feet and he's basically fighting for his life. Yeah. Um, I feel like, I don't know how you feel. Um, I guess where did, where did they leave off last time? The Kundral before we, the Kundral had just pretty much saved them is where they, so I don't know. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're fine. Um, but yeah, they got, yeah. So, I don't know that I would say this is a criticism, but like, it felt like they still had a long ways to go. Right. Yep. Um, and obviously we're getting towards the end of this book. So it just, it, it feels like there's a lot of stuff that 
I don't want to say it was like skipped over, but at the same, maybe it wasn't important because just the distance that they had left to cover, it seemed like they were halfway and now they're almost like they're knocking on the doorstep. Um, I don't know. It like, it, it doesn't bug me, but it's just kind of like, well, where did all that time go? But then I think like if everything was, in, you know, if this book would be like 10,000 pages long. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah I, I'm struggling to put my thoughts into words. No, you're, I feel like what you're getting at is you feel like we just read the Vathar, which I want to say was chapter 15, chapter 15 or 16. This is chapter 19. So 20. You know, this right. Yeah, this is chapter 20. So they're, uh, you know, they've already done the dry march. And when they get to when they get to basically the plane before Sanamon, you know, that's where they are now. So they're not they're not at Sanamon yet. They're in between the Vathar and Sanamon, but closer to Sanamon. It just feels like this sped up a lot. And I guess like if you know in these areas there if there's nothing out there, then there's not a lot of need to, I guess, be there with them. They can just get to the next point. But I don't know, it just feels kind of weird to me. I get what you're saying, but you know, what happened with the Kundral basically happened midway point between the Vathar and Sanamon. Like that is where they got their reprieve. So, and you know, 40 hours, right. That's nearly two days of being pursued and they just don't have the time to turn around and organize a fight because Corbelo Dom is just so pissed off. You know, the Kundra yeah, ran off and did whatever they were going to do. Like, you know, at the last we left off, they apologized for not being able to wipe out Corbelo Dom's army entirely. And then I think that's why they were saying that the Wiccans were the the best in the in the South Odin, you know, where they were like Wiccans, 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 because they were pretty much just about ready to just head home because they their pride was shattered. They didn't kill them all. I don't think I've got anything to add to that. <laughs> I mean, I get what you're saying, but I feel like it makes sense to me, you know, that the, like the final stretch would be like, I guess, you know, when you're running a mile, right. That last, that last quarter of a mile, you just book ass, you know, when you're coming down that final stretch, you just run as fast as you can, even though you're already tired from running, you know, 3.75 laps. You just give it your all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Last hundred yards, not quarter mile. Well, I guess it depends on how much you got in the tank. If you're a good runner, <laughs> maybe it is the, that last quarter mile and not the last hundred yards. Yeah. For me, it was always the last hundred, hundred yards or hundred meters or whatever. What? Yeah. I, yeah. I understood what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. We ran track together. We, we always, did. we always carried up the rear. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody had to. Right. Yeah, dude. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of what's going on. It's just it's just really weird to go from like, oh, well, the last time we saw these guys, they had a reprieve and they had some time to breathe. But now, like three days later, they don't. Well, I guess nearly three days later, they get a reprieve and then they fucking have to. Corbelo Dom is back nipping at every heels attacks from all directions, you know more than three at once so it's just like god damn you can feel how rushed it is like 
how desperate everything is in this in this section. And then for Lol and the Nameless Marine to just hop up to Duiker and say, hey, Coltane wants you. And then, you know, Lol explains about this tribe that is just kind of sitting on the sidelines watching everything take place and wondering what that means. Coltane obviously has an idea, which will get revealed later. And I think Duiker is able to figure out what Coltane is thinking based on the way that Lol is looking for assurances about the tribe itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. But also just, I guess what I'm really loving out of everything in this section is the fact that like Duiker still has time to admire the beauty of his female companion. Like, even though she's hurt, he still has like some concern for her. And when he looks at her remarkable eyes, she just, he doesn't see anything that he once did, but they're still beautiful to him. You know, I just thought that it was just really cool and really sappy and almost kind of romantic in all of this death and destruction, you know? There's a little bit of color and all that gray. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, again, like I said earlier, you know, all these majority of these sections are pretty linear. Like everything is moving towards the next direction. And there's just these really kind of like gooey pieces of information. Uh, Some of them new, some of them closure. And then some of them kind of like, well, it could be this, but it could also be that. I don't necessarily have anything else. Um, to say about it, I just, I feel the desperation in the section. I can feel how desperate they are to be done with this. Oh yeah. I mean, I couldn't imagine being in a fight for 40 hours while you're trying to escape it. Like I'm sure if I was in a situation, you could push yourself to stay awake for that long, but even just like, as it is like. I don't want to try to stay up for 24 hours straight. Like, it's just dumb. (laughs) Um, I mean, I've done it. I certainly wasn't fighting for my life at the same time. So, yeah, the exhaustion has got to be real. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I guess I don't I don't have anything else to to say about it. But, yeah, it's just I'm really liking this chapter so far. Yeah, it was quite the chapter. That's for sure. So if you're you're ready here, I'll take my next section then. Good to go. All right. Santamon was a massive tell, a flat-topped hill, half a mile across and over 30 armbands high, the plateau windswept and barren. South of it was the Sanith Oren, where the chain of dogs now struggled. Two raised roads remained from the time when the tell had been a thriving city. Both roads ran straight. The one that went west was unused, and it went to another dead tell in the hills named Panasanum and nowhere else. The other, Stanagem, went southwest and gave an overland route to the inland sea of Kletar. The Crow clan held Stanagem, manning it as if it were a wall, and the southern third or so of the tell was a wicked strong point. The refugees were led along the east edge of Sanaman as there was no need for a flanking guard with the cliff wall. Troops were moved to support the rear guard and eastern flanks as Corbolo Dom's forces had continued to engage and wound up with another bloody nose. The seventh were still a sight, even though their numbers had dwindled. Even as they killed, there was wailing and crying. 
Once the archers showed up, the fight was over and it was time to rest again. Coltane stood alone, waiting, facing the Odan, his feathered cloak blowing in the wind. On a ridge 2,000 paces away, another tribe waited against the blue sky. Duiker looked at the man as they approached. He tried to put himself in Coltane's skin to understand. He pulled that thought back immediately. It wasn't failure of his imagination, but an unwillingness. He cannot carry anyone else's burden, not even for a moment. They are all alone. Coltane spoke, naming the horseman the Karan Dobri, or that's what the map calls them. Duker said they are Aaron's reluctant neighbors. Coltane turned to him and said they had always held up their end of treaties. Duker told him that pissed off a lot of people in Aaron. He glanced at his nameless marine and said they should seek out a cutter. She said she could still hold a shield. He didn't doubt it, but he said she would risk infection. Her eyes widened and Duiker felt, felt silent. Suddenly, felt a rush of sadness. Coltane asked Captain Lull if the wagons were ready. He replied they were. Addressing Duiker, Coltane said he would give him Nil and Nether and a troop from the three clans. Coltane then asked Lull if Bolt had also informed the wounded. Lull said he had, though they refused the order. Coltane nodded with narrowed eyes. Lull also told Coltane that Corporal List had also refused. Coltane sighed and said those he had picked were not pleased, but they would not disobey him. Duiker had command, and he would command as he saw fit. He only has one responsibility, though, and that is to get the refugees to Aaron. Duiker thought that. Now it comes to this. He tried to address Coltane, who abruptly cut him off. You are Malazan. Follow the prescribed procedures. Duiker asked what would happen if they were betrayed. Coltane only told him that then they would all join Hood. In this place, if there has to be an end, then let it be fitting. Duiker told him to hold on as long as he could. If he had to skin Pormqual himself and wear his face, he would do it to give the order to help. Coltane told him to leave the high fist to the Empress and her adjunct. Duiker tried to give Coltane the glass bottle that hung around his neck. He refused it, saying it's not the Empire's soldiers the Empress can afford to lose. It is its memory. A troop of Wiccans arrived with horses, Duiker's included. The rest of the chain came into view. Duiker asked about Corporal List. Lull told him he would not change his mind, and Lull told him that List had asked to pass on his farewell to Duiker, and that he had said something about a ghost on his shoulder, and he had found his war. Those words seemed to have an effect on Duiker. He told Lull to inform the troops that they would attack within the hour. Duiker slowly shook his head. Lull addressed him. Historian? No, Duiker replied. Perhaps in a week I will be historian again. But at this moment, and for what's to come, I have no word for what I should be called now. I think old man shall suffice. Duiker said with a weak smile. This seemed to rattle Lull. He said to Coltane that this man feels he has no title. He's chosen old man. Duiker said that was a poor choice because, I don't know if I meant Coltane here. Uh, old men are wise and not fools. There's not one among them that would have a problem with who or what he is. They know him as a soldier. He asked if that title was insulting. Duiker didn't think so. Coltane told the soldier to lead the refugees to safety. The female Marine said she had something for him. 
She told Duiker to wait a while before he read it. He tucked the scrap into his belt and nodded. He wished Bolt and List were here, but at this moment, there would be no goodbye. Like everything else, this moment was messy, awkward, and incomplete. Lull told him to get on his horse and to stay in Hood's blind side. Duiker wished the same for all of them. Coltane hissed. Not a chance of that, Duiker. We intend to carve a bloody path right down the bastard's throat. Oh, you get the feeling that everybody's saying goodbye, right? Oh, uh, yeah. This, it, uh, I'm not going to say a last stand. It's like they're making their final charge. Right. Yeah. Like the whole goal is to get the refugees to safety, which I think is so admirable. So basically what I've gathered is they're, they're essentially just going to put each other in harm's way to hopefully stall Dom enough for the refugees to escape. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, it's like, I mean, he's, he's going to get to go out on his own terms. Well, maybe, because I've got my thoughts on, you know, from what we've seen on the cover of the uh, Subterranean Press cover for this book, and I think we might be getting close to that, if my thoughts are correct, which they may not be. Um, I mean, you yeah, think that Coltane's going to die many, many episodes ago. And yeah, I think at this point, you're right. I really legitimately think that he's probably going to die. Like, I think it would be a miracle if he made it out. I mean, just he's essentially just throwing themselves and every able body at Dom's army. He can purely for the goal of getting the refugees to safety, because he knows that if he continues fighting the way that they've been fighting, just being outnumbered and attacked and separated, that he's not. They're not going to make it. They're all going to be joining Hood. So right, and I I feel like Coltane's thinking and logic is yeah to buy time for Duker to get everybody to Aaron. Hopefully enough time to get them there. Uh, but I also think it's it's a way for him to choose how he gets to die. You know, he's going to get to die in battle. Um, but I do think that's just based on my thoughts of the the cover of the book um, that that's not going to be the case. I, I think he's going to end up being captured and uh, tortured. He'll still die, but it's just, it isn't what is probably going in his mind. You know, he's going to have this glorious death on the battlefields, you know, vastly outnumbered, no hope. And he's going to get, you know, take down as many as he can before he's cut down. It's, it's not going to be like that. I think. All right. Fair, fair, fair. Um, Do you think, and this is a thought that I had the other day is, well, we'll get into it later. Never mind. Um, <laughs> we won't talk about this now. But yeah, it's just, you know, Coltane, you know, clearly has this idea that, you know, as far as this tribe that's just sitting and waiting, like Duiker is to follow, is to follow Mal- Malazan procedure with them. And I think that this is just part of his desperation, right? Like this is his way of, I guess, taking the responsibility and giving it to Duiker in hopes that they'll get some assistance from this tribe that's just watching uh, if they follow the Malazan procedures. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like where his head cannon is. It's like, well, if we can get the refugees out of here, then hopefully I can buy him enough time. So. Right. Yeah. It's going to be close. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, 
one of my thoughts on here, and I don't think I summarized it very well, but I, maybe I was just a little bit confused, but I don't know what you think, but the the way it was written, or maybe it was just the way that I wrote it, but it seemed like the soldiers of the seventh were the ones crying and wailing as they killed Dom's forces. Is that what you thought? No, but the way you have worded it makes it seem like it's that way. Um, the way that it was said in the book was soldiers the seventh was still something to behold despite its diminished numbers soldiers among it pitching dead to the ground without a visible wound on them others wailing and weeping even as they slayed their their foes so you're right you know they were wailing and crying but it was because they're essentially i don't know killing they're killing their foes but they've been doing that the whole time so like i don't know yeah but that part confused me a little bit but i think it's just you know you're so tired right like you just want it to be done and you're just so exhausted but yet like it just comes and it comes and it's just like when you're so tired of like doing the same thing like you just break down and you cry right yeah i suppose i can see that yeah you're just you just want it to be done like you right. said yeah like you're just so ready for it to be over and it's just i don't think that it's it's a a cry of grief or anything like that it's just a cry of like i'm ready to be done to done i'm ready to be done with this i'm exhausted you know i've been awake for 30 plus hours defending myself and people around me you know yeah like to the point where like in the last section duiker is like seeing people collapse from basically i would imagine heart attacks right because they're just they've got nothing left they're so exhausted and tired and thirsty and hungry too you know it all just builds on on itself and yeah you know body can only take so much yeah and i think what erickson is trying to depict here is that the body is at its its last limit it's at the end of its rope maybe even beyond it right yeah so I don't think that you necessarily summarized that wrong. I just think that you were confused when you wrote it. So, yeah, that's very possible. That's why I need your point of view sometimes. Yeah. Help make it make sense. <laughs> well, and likewise, you offer some clarity to my far stretchedness. So, <laughs> it's a good balance. Yeah. Um, you know, where Duoker thinks that he cannot carry anyone else's burden, not even for a moment, and that they're alone. I just, I thought, man, that's that's dark, dark and hopeless, and I don't know how you could be in a position to help anybody else, you know, if that's your state of mind. It's pretty rough. How so? Why do you think so? Because you're just, you're so, like, you'd have to be so just wrapped up in taking care of yourself at that point. Like, you, you I don't know how you could offer help if you're, if you can't take somebody else's burden, even just putting yourself in those, it, to try to understand somebody else's point of view you've got to be so exhausted uh i just it's kind of a selfish mentality i guess but i would suppose living through something like that you're gonna have to have that at some point well i mean Uh isn't isn't he talking about colt or coltane's burden right like he can't carry because i feel like coltane is talking about uh or duoker is thinking about coltane's decision here right right and i think coltane wanted to try to understand what he was going through so he could maybe try to help with 
advice or whatever. And he can't even do that. He can't even put himself in his shoes to try to understand, you know, whatever this decision might be to try to offer some advice and, and help. It just everybody's kind of their own little island right now. That's fair. No, I like that. Okay. All right. That sounds good. You know me, I like to question you on things sometimes. <laughs> and then I fumble around and try to defend myself. <laughs> Gotta keep you off guard is all. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're, this won't be the last that we see of a list, or it's talking about the ghost on his shoulder and he's found his war. Um, I don't know. I don't um, think he's going to be done. Somehow, some way, I don't know. I mean, at first I aligned with you, uh, and that thought, but I, I think this was his way of saying goodbye to Duiker, as he really only shared his insight of the Jaghut ghost with Duiker. So I think it's kind of like him telling Lol this was very vague. Like Lol is probably like, "What the fuck are you talking about, man?" You know, right? But he's just gonna he's just gonna recite to Duiker what Liz said anyway, even though he has no context. So I think that. I think that List just feels extreme sorrow for the Jag Hut and him being possessed by it, essentially, that he wants to die where they did too. So I think that him sharing this with Duiker is basically his way of saying goodbye because Duiker would know what he meant. Right. Yeah, it's possible, I suppose. Let's see what happens. Uh, yeah, it does seem like it's pretty hopeless that anybody's going to survive, though. And like Bolt too. Like, I'm sad about him. I liked Bolt as as a yeah. a Wiccan character. You know, um, he's not really mentioned very much in here, but it's just everybody is saying goodbye. Like, this is the goodbye section to me. I liked how it was worded too. You know, where it was, uh, where it was messy. You know, I said it was messy and um, awkward and incomplete. Like. What do you say? I mean, to somebody, you know, like, you know, these guys are going to go out and they're just going to die. I mean, what do you say to that? I don't think you can say anything. You just kind of right. like silently accept it as if like saying it would make it true. You know, like saying goodbye would diminish all hope in your mind that they would make it through. Yeah. It's so that, I mean, it makes sense, you know, that it's awkward and everything, but yeah, it'd be a tough way to have to say goodbye when yeah. you really can't so yeah man i'm almost kind of slightly dreading reading this next chapter i don't know what's gonna <laughs> happen but i mean it's just like the weight of this section is just so powerful you know yeah it uh yeah i think that's the right word is the weight it's it's tough well i don't know about you but uh i'm ready to move on if you are yeah for sure all right with Nil and Nether, Duiker led the refugee train out to meet the tribe on the ridge. The Wiccans that were protecting the wagons were all very young. They were not happy about having to leave their clans. Duiker had a thought about the young Wiccans, and that was if Colte made an error in this gamble, then the young Wiccans would get to use their weapons one last time. Nil stated that two riders approached. Duiker responded that this was a good sign. His eyes fixated on the two. Karen, Karen, Karan, elders that now approached. Duker told Nil to stay put and told Nether to follow him. They met a few paces ahead of the lead wagon. Duker was first to speak, explaining that these lands were the Karan, Dorby lands that they all recognized by treaty. 
The Malazan Empire honors all treaties and we seek passage. The elderly woman asked how much, with her eyes focused on the wagon. Duker explained that it was a collection from all the soldiers of the 7th Army, worth a total of 41,000 jacatas. The elderly woman scowled and stated that this was the wages for a full-strength Malazan army. This was no collection. You have stolen the soldiers' wages to buy passage. Duker appeared to be caught off guard, said softly that the soldiers insisted, and in truth was a collection. Nether chimes in and explained that from the Wiccans themselves, an additional payment of jewelry, cookware, skins, felt, horseshoes, tack and tether, or tack and leather, etc., all in the amount of 73,000 subrajicatas, all given freely. The elderly woman was silent for some time and then conferred with her companion in their own language. She asked the historian if this offer uh, was passage for the refugees, the Seventh and the Wiccan clans. Duger stated that it was just for the refugees and these small bands of guards. The elderly woman of the Dorby rejected his offer as it was too much, and the treaty with the Empress was specific. Duker was at a loss and shrugged. He started to speak, but was interrupted by the elderly woman. She said that the remainder of the payment would enter Aaron, just to be looted by Corbelo Dom when he reached the gates, and therefore would end up paying Corbelo Dom to slaughter them all. Nether said that, that then, with the remainder, they would pay the Dorby for their escort to Aaron. Duker's heart stuttered. The elderly woman said that to the gates of Aaron was too far but they would escort them to the village of Balan, which was the beginning of the road known as the Aran Way. They would sell them food and provide any, any healing. The elderly woman and Nether have a bonding moment around horsewives. The Karan Dorby woman said to Duiker and Nether to have them join her people. The two rode back to their kin, and Duiker sat watching them ride. He turned and stood in his stirrups far to the north over the tell of Sanamon, Hung a cloud of dust. Duerger asked Nether if she could send a message to Coltane. She said that she could send him a knowing. Duerger told Nether to tell Coltane that the fist was right. So here's my thought, right? So I think that it's really kind of convenient that you've got two tribes to the south of the Oda, in the southern Odins, that end up helping, you know, uh, the Malazan army here right convenient yes but do you remember in i don't even remember what 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 chapter um that i think it was actually the last chapter with the vathar and the corpses and um just the amount of conversation around that day right and it said that it made the natives of the seven cities like where, you know what I mean? So I think that what I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that what happened at the Vathar and how much that tale has spread, even all the way to Darugistan, has made these tribes rethink going up against Coltane in the seventh. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. So I think that's why they are choosing to help instead of for their own selfish needs is they don't want to get taken out. I mean, that's pretty fair, though. <laughs> like, would you want to get taken out? I wouldn't. I mean, in what, in anybody's mind, I, I mean, you have to admire how far Coltane has come. 
right? All the way from Hisar to damn near Aaron, all the while battling the elements, battling thirst and hunger, and then battling any and all that the apocalypse can throw at this, this army. Like you have to have, no matter who you are, the utmost respect for that. And probably even make you think like of your own actions. Like I'm, I'm an army of the apocalypse and I'm hearing stories of all this. And I'm like, am I really doing the right thing here? You know, these guys <laughs> seem to be so more passionate about it than I am. They're hanging in there, but yeah, I guess I can see that, but I'd also think like, okay, I mean, they're outnumbered so badly. If we add our numbers to, you know, Dom's, how could they possibly contend? But somehow they, you know, they, they've contended this far. So I, I don't know. There'd yeah. be some doubt, I think, from me for sure. Oh yeah, it's definitely making other areas of the what would be the apocalypse armies doubt. So yeah, but also this is a lot of money too. Like you would be stupid to not take it, and then just realize that if you didn't take it, Corbelo Dom would just end up killing you all and taking it anyway. So why not just, why not we keep it instead of giving it to Carbolo Dom, who's just going to slaughter you as soon as you get into Aaron, you know? Right. Yeah. But paying for the the, privilege of being slaughtered. I like, I like that. Yeah. It was, it was really dark. It was just a really dark thought, you know? And so I think that's why these elders are like, yeah, okay, well, we'll escort you. We'll, we'll heal you. We'll provide you food and water, you know, um, because we know yeah. that if we don't take it, it's just going to end up on with, in Dom's hands. So we might as well use it to our advantage. Right. Um, so I already talked about all my points that I had in this section. I don't know if you have anything additional. I mean, it's definitely transitional. It's not, I don't think that there's any new information in this. It's just kind of progressing do occur in the refugees onward and leaving everything else in limbo. Um, the only thing I would add is just when I was reading through this the first time and she rejected their offer, my jaw like dropped mm-hmm. until I kept reading, you know, and saw that, okay, like we're going to accept it just under like some different terms basically. Um, but I was like, Oh fuck. <laughs> These guys are just getting bent over all over the place. Yeah. Like, oh, it looks like they might get some help. Nope. And then it, the ship kind of righted itself a little bit there, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was all. That was my only other thought to, to add there. Sweet. All right. You ready? Yeah. Section eight here. Ascent slowly rose as if from a body all believed to be a corpse. Faces took on a look of disbelief. A numbness that refused to subside to protective barriers that were raised. Dusk had arrived, shrouding the 30,000 refugees in dual silences. One being the sea of stars above, and the other the dour-faced Karnal. The gift and gestures brought by the tribe seemed to bring a release. Duiker sat, listening to the cries in the dark, the sounds wrenching at his heart, joy mixed with anguish and despair. A stranger would have thought that there was a heinous crime being committed, but that same stranger could not understand the release that was brought that night. Sounds that his own soul could reckon with. But he knew somewhere out there, there was a wall of human flesh wearing pieced together armor, defying Corbolo Dom. Those soldiers had bought and paid for their salvation. 
He could not escape that thought. Duiker asked Nether how Coltane had fared. She did not know as the link had been broken. Duiker followed up asking if he was gone then. Nether could not say. They had not sensed a death cry, and they surely would have. Duiker thought it was possible he had been captured. She said it was possible, and if Dom arrived on the morrow, the Karan will pay dearly for their contract. Nether trailed off. Duiker asked if she was okay. She apologized, saying she couldn't turn off she couldn't turn her ears off, and they may be deluding themselves, even if they make it to Balan. To Aaron's way, it's still three leagues to the city itself. Duiker understood her concerns, but told her that out here it was the acts of kindness. Out here, none of them have any defenses against that type of gift. Nether exclaimed that the release was too soon. Duiker agreed, but said there wasn't a damn thing they could do about it. They heard voices behind them. They rose and saw a group of people approaching. Nethpara said he hoped he wasn't interrupting anything. Duiker said it would be wise if the council retired for the night. A long day of marching awaited them all tomorrow. Pulik Alar said that's why they are here. Nethpara spoke, saying those who had some wealth remaining had purchased horses for their carriages. Pulik said they, meaning their small group, wanted to leave as soon as possible for Aaron. Nethpara said when they get there, they will insist that the High Fist send out an escort to guard them the rest of the way. Duker asked after Tumlet. He was told he had fallen ill and died, which was regrettable. Duker said it wasn't a bad idea, but he rejected it based on the fact it would stir up panic among those not leaving. They would have to settle for being at the front of the line. The nobles were pissed, saying it was an outrage. Duker told Nethpara to get the hell out of his face before he finished killing him, like he should have done at the Vathar crossing. Nethpara told Duker he best believe he's not forgotten about that. Duker said the motion was still denied. Go get some sleep. It's going to be a long day tomorrow. Pollock hissed that this was a certainty since Dom was hardly done with them, and now that Coltane was dead, they're not going to last 17 hours, man. There's uh, my aliens reference for the episode. Once the escort ends, these stinking nomads won't be able to protect them. Duiker sends them all to their death, three leagues from the city. Duiker was irritated and said, I, all or none, now I'm done talking. Leave. Pollock asked if he was the Wiccan dog reborn. Pulling out his rapier, he challenged Duiker to a duel. In a blur, he drew his sword and smacked him in the temple, knocking him unconscious. Duiker whispered, Coltane reborn? No, I am just a soldier. Nether told Nethpara that it will be expensive to have him healed. Duiker said he could have just swung harder and saved them the money, and told Nether to have the Wiccans watch the nobles this night. Fucking nobles, man. They just always find a way to fuck it up. Or try to. I mean, right. yeah. I'm, uh, I'm sad for Tomblet. He was the only redeeming quality. Of the nobles. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people died on this trip, so what do you do? <laughs> yeah, I guess I would have just preferred a different noble to have died instead of Tumlin. Uh, yeah, Nethpara is a fucking dick. Like, it's, yeah, I, I kind of wonder if they formed this plan so it sounded like they have good intentions. I mean, because we know, I mean, we know that nobody's coming out for them, right? Like, right. no matter who says, like, hey, go help our boys out, like, it ain't happening. Um, but I don't know that they necessarily know that. Um, but yeah, 
fucking rich people. (laughs) Like, yeah, I mean, I get it. There's still people too. And like, nobody wants to die, especially being hunted down. But like, you got to stick together to some extent. Like, I don't know. Something could pop up ahead of you too, for all you know, and take you out that way. I mean, and if you're not with the group, there's so many things that could go wrong. Well, and I mean, Duker's right. I mean, it totally, I could see it causing a panic, right? Like you just got these people running off in the middle of the night. Like, what is it that, like, you can only think, like, what do they know that we don't? Right. So, yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed the way that this chapter opened up with just dusk arriving and everybody sitting in that like awkward silence, you know, um, all the, the stars in the sky. And then of course the dour face Kanonrol, Karenol, you know, it just, yeah. it made it, it, it felt awkward even for me reading it. <laughs> yeah. It was very descriptive and it, I do like how it was described. Um, Again, very dark and uh, just, I don't know, not very inspirational of hope, is it? No. What um, what do you think caused the link to break between Nether and Coltane? I don't think it was just a matter of distance. No. Um, I don't think so either. Do you think Coltane did it on purpose? I don't know if he would have that capability. If he's, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that he's dead yet. Like I said, I think he's going to get captured and tortured. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe Dom has somebody that was able to break it. But then at the same time, I think that would maybe, you know, they would maybe, Nether would probably sense like that would happen. So I I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I don't either. I just thought it was interesting. So, I mean, at this point in time, I think that, I think they're right. I think Nether is... Or I, I think that Coltane is still alive, is what I meant to say, at this moment in time. But if yeah. the link is broken, that would also explain why she hasn't like felt a death cry. Yeah, right. So yeah, they're just unsure. But I don't know what would, I don't know what would cause that to be broken. Because yeah, I don't, I don't think Duiker would have the capability to do that. But maybe he does. I don't know. Do you think that Coltane is a warlock too? No. Because I thought it was only the warlocks that could talk amongst themselves. So how is it that Coltane can be sent messages if he himself is not a warlock? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they can just like see through his eyes or something. I don't know. I don't think he's a warlock because then why wouldn't he just use like his magic and shit while he's fighting? I don't know. Because it's not noble. Maybe he was kicked out of the warlocks and therefore banned. I, I don't know, man. It just... I don't know. There's so many questions about Coltane that haven't been answered yet. So I don't think he is. I think he's just a guy, a badass guy for sure. But yeah, I don't think he's got magical abilities. All right. Well, um, I didn't really have much for this section. Again, like really transitional, very linear, just moving the story forward. I was a little surprised that Duiker just didn't uh, kill the guy that challenged him to a duel because, like, I think about like like a modern day soldier, right? Like if you're gonna draw your weapon, like you're shooting to kill, right? Right. And, and so he draws a sword and turns it on its side and just cracks him upside the head with it. Like, I mean, that takes a thought to do, especially when he does it as quick as he you know does to catch the guy off guard. Um, I think he would have just sliced him. I don't know. Taking him out of his misery. Yep. Yeah, I guess that's what mercy is, right? 
We'll see what happens to the novels if they're going to live happily ever after. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess we could talk about that when we get there, but sure. Ready to move on if you're ready to go. Sweet. The refugee train had reached the village of Balan. The village consisted of a mere 40 residents who had all fled days earlier. The only thing that was under a century old was the Malzan arched gate that marked the start of the Aran Way. The Quran spokeswoman said that payment was received and all agreements have been honored. Duiker thanked the Quran spokeswoman. The elder spokeswoman said that thanks were not needed, but they are welcome. Duiker added on to his thanks that the Empress will hear of the Quran's kindness. She didn't respond to this, but rather took the opportunity to inform Duiker that a large force was approaching as they had been seen by the Quran's rear guard. The elder asked if Duiker was sure that Aaron would open their gates to them. The historian responded by saying that they'll cross that bridge when he gets there. She said there was wisdom in that, and they both said their goodbyes. The Quran force took but five minutes to leave, the wagon of payment under heavy guard. Duiker had sent, set a grueling pace the last few days, and it was apparent on the refugees' faces that safety couldn't be assured until they were beyond Aaron's massive fortified walls. Duker has a thought that the harder he pushes the refugees, the slower those that follow can go. What choice does he have, though? Duker told Nil to inform the Wiccans, as he wants the entire train through this gate before the sun sets. He gives Nil permission to use any means necessary short of killing and maiming. The refugees have forgotten their terror of you. Remind them. Nether reminded the historian that they were 30 Wiccans in the troop, and they were all youths. Duiker reminded them that they were angry, so let them have an outlet. I thought that was kind of a badass thing to say, like, at the <laughs> end there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what else do you do? I mean, you got to motivate, motivate these people somehow. I mean, they are being chased still. Yeah, but at the same time, like, if the terror of being slaughtered by Carbolo Dom isn't enough, like, then what is going to do it? Like... Because I don't think some screaming kids are going to be the motivating factor in that case. No, probably not. Um, I thought that was cool. A couple of things here in this really short section. Um, the Aaron Way, I guess, was a wide and raised military road that had been constructed during Decim Ultor's command early in the Seven Cities Conquest. So it definitely seems like it was something that was created the last time that they came to seven cities, the Malzan Empire. So I don't know what the timeline is between that one and this one, but I feel like there was a purpose to that. Yeah. Um, I looked at similar situation or something. Well, I guess, I don't know if you got a nice, if you got a nice road, like it's going to be a lot easier for your wagons to travel and shit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I imagine that takes some time to build that. Um, uh, yeah. What did they say? They had three leagues to get to the city, to Aaron itself, right? N no, they had three leagues to get to the gate of the Aaron Way. So, oh, I thought it said there was three leagues beyond that was the city itself. Um, anyways, three leagues is, is a little over 10 miles. So I like, I didn't know how, I know I've looked up leagues before, but it's always been like big numbers. So I, I didn't, I didn't really remember what the conversion was, but sure. after all the distance they've covered, like, so you got basically you know, 10 miles. This is still, when you're exhausted, like, that's still a long ways to go. 
Well, and I mean, it takes what the average person 20, 20 to 25 minutes to walk a mile. Yeah. If you're not exhausted and old and <laughs> carrying your kids or whatever else. Right. Yeah. And that was the other thing that was just really brutal to me is that when they're talking about the refugees uh, and the harder he pushes them, the slower those that follow can go. And to me, it just means that because those that are following are basically unable to keep pace with the main group. And it means that they'll likely be left behind if he pushes the train too hard. And it's a sad choice because if he goes too slow, then Dom's army who is nipping at their heels will catch up. Right. But at the same time, if he pushes them too fast, then those that are following will not be able to keep up and be swallowed by Dom's army anyway. So it's like right. this yeah. utilitarian decision to, you know, sacrifice the few for the many. And it's it's just sad that he has to be put into that mentality. Yeah, it would suck. I mean, you just, I don't know, what can you do? You do the best you can, I guess. Right, pretty much. Some, it's not good enough sometimes. Yeah. But those are the only two thoughts that I had. Again, another very transitional section. I do think it's interesting that the uh, the city of Balan here, but the village of Balan, the only thing that wasn't a century old was the archway itself. So everything else is centuries old. So I'm assuming that this used to be another ancient city of some kind, a smaller ancient city. Everything here seems old. So. Right. Because it kind of sounds like Seven Cities is like... I get the feeling of like Mesopotamia and like early, early civilizations, uh, like within the Middle East and Africa. I feel like that is its comparing comparance to like modern, like our world is that it's the kind of the birthplace of humanity. I guess I hadn't put much thought into that, but yeah, I wonder if it is like the oldest continent on the planet, Malazan planet. Yeah. Just food for thought, just something that just randomly popped in my head as we were talking about, you know, things being more than a century old. For sure. But yeah, man, I'm ready to move on if you are. All right. Section 10. The first third of Aaron Way was accommodating. Locally, it was known as the ramp. Cone-shaped hills shaded their path on the east and would do so until about a thousand paces of Aaron's north wall. They were not natural. They were mass graves. The resting places of people of the city slaughtered by the Talanimus. The hill closest to the city held the wealthy ruling families and the holy protector and Philadon. Duiker left Nil to lead the vanguard as he fell to the very rear of the chain. There, three Wiccans and Nether were yelling for all they were worth, urging on the weakest and slowest of the refugees. They had passed more than one body who couldn't make the grueling pace anymore. They had no time for a burial no strength to carry them. To the north and east, they could see clouds of dust getting closer. Nether was surprised. They weren't taking the road. This overland route was much slower, but shorter on the map. The hills were not marked. Non-imperial maps showed it as a plain, and the barrows were too recent of an addition. They thought Dom would have had the Malazan additions, but the stroke of luck may have been enough to save them. Duker knew it was still a long shot, They were probably less than a third of a league away, and mounted troops could cover that in minutes, even with the barrows. Nether broke in and said that they have spotted Aaron. Nil had shown her with his eyes. 
Duiker asked about the gates. However, the gates were closed. Duiker bellowed out that the city was within sight. It wasn't much further now, urging the chain to keep moving. Looking around, Duiker could see the pace increased. Some were running. He asked if there were soldiers on the walls. Nether said they were packed, but the gate was still closed, though they were within 1,000 paces. Duiker yelled, what in Hood's name was wrong with them? He told Nether to take the Wiccans and ride for Aaron. She asked about him. Duiker was not concerned with himself, save the children. She took three, thr- she took three riders with her and set off. The chain was stretching out with the quicker advancing while the elderly surrounded Duiker, many giving up and sitting down, awaiting death. He screamed at them to get up, but to no avail. In all this confusion, he saw a child no more than 18 months old. He scooped up the child. He could see the city now, only a short distance away. The gates were open, swallowing the refugees while the Wiccan stayed on the outside to try and keep the flow of people contained. City garrison guards were now reaching the end of the chain where Duiker was, picking up the refugees and carrying them to the gates. Duiker spotted a captain and told him to take the child he had on his horse. The captain asked if he was Duiker. When he got confirmation, he told Duiker that he was to report immediately to the high fist. He told the captain that bastard would have to wait. He will see every refugee through the gate first and ask the captain's name as there may be parents for this child yet. It was Keneb. Keneb said he would take care of the lass. He grabbed Duiker's wrist and apologized to Duiker. He told the captain his loyalty was to the city he was sworn to defend. Keneb knew this and he told him the soldiers on the walls were as close to the action as they could get. If Duiker understood his meaning, and they were not happy about it. Duiker said they weren't the only one unhappy ones and sent him on his way. Keneb! Yes! I was so happy when we got when he came back in. Yeah. Yeah, that was nice. Um, I figured we'd probably see him at some point. I didn't know in like what capacity, but uh, yeah, that was that was a good feeling. Yeah. Um, in a pretty uh, like for being at the end of the line here, it's still pretty bleak. Um, these cone-shaped hills reminded me of early on in Gardens of the Moon when uh, was it the Moranth or who was it? who was who got like such an allotted time to go like kill however many people they could i can't remember what that was but then they were yeah was morant and then they were you know they were making their graves outside that reminded reminded me of this oh yeah yeah but i mean these were graves that were that happened during the slaughtering of the talani mass when they were in the city so yeah different situation but similar feel Oh yeah, no, I wasn't comparing them. I was just saying that uh, we're getting we're getting kind of a little bit of what happened. You know, slowly things are being revealed as to what happened before. Right, um, man. You know this, like reading it, like it just like would break my heart. You know, you're within eyesight of the city, and you have these people that are just giving up and sitting down, just waiting for death. Like I can't make sense of that. Like. You've traveled all this way. You've survived everything. And now this is where you're calling it quits. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. How could you, like, don't you think, like, wouldn't that be the adrenaline rush you would need? Like, exhaustion, hunger, thirst, whatever else. Like, all that is at an end within eyesight. And you just have to get there. And now you're just like, nope, I'm, 
I'm done. I'm just done right here. And I'm just going to die here. Like, why now you've come so far, just finish the, finish the race. Like, come on. Do you think that they legitimately feel like it's the end? I mean, they're still being chased. What's, what's Aaron going to do to protect, protect them? I mean, yeah, they may live and see another day, but at the, you know, at the end of it all, <laughs> I don't think that they have any confidence that they're going to be able to hold Aaron. So let's just go now. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, when you got to go, you got to go. Right. <laughs> okay. Mr. Jurassic park. Um, I don't know. I mean, it says Aaron's got high city walls. You got soldiers there. Soldiers on a wall are worth a lot more than guys on the ground. I mean, it's much more defensible. You've got food, you've got water. Isn't this the same situation as to why they didn't go to Ubard? Is because Salmar was told that they would only have days to prepare to defend defend the Yeah, city. but that was like that was like a ruin though. Like I got the sense like that was just in tatters. Like you've got some like half assed walls that like are chest high or something you know like i don't know where this is like you know like if these guys are gonna they're either gonna have to kick the fucking door in or they're gonna have to get ladders and climb up you know 30 40 feet whatever however tall it is you know so i don't know and you're right i mean maybe you know maybe it's still maybe aaron still gets overtaken i don't know but you got a lot better shot now than you did before yeah i guess that's fair all right well I I'll plead my it. case. I'll take it. <laughs> that was all I really had. Yeah. Again, it's just, you know, it's moving, it's moving everything forward. Um, yeah. Not, not a ton of, of really like information in there. Yeah. My heart breaks in the section. It's just like each one just more dire than the next while still moving things along, you know? Right. All right. Well, if you're ready to move on, I am too. For sure. Joker was the last. When the gate finally emptied, not a single breathing refugee remained outside the walls. Outside those, of course, he could see further down the road. The ones still seated, unable to move, and taking their last breaths. They were too far away to retrieve, and the soldiers of Aaron had strict orders as to how far beyond the gate they could go. Inside the gap of the gate, the historian wheeled around and stared northward. First, to the dust clouds coming up, dust cloud coming up the last and largest barrel, and then beyond in the glittering sphere of the whirlwind. Inside his mind, he went further still, north and east, to a city on a different coast. Too much to comprehend, too much to end this soul scarring journey. He swung his horse around and tapped his mare's flanks. He ignored the soldiers on the wall, even when they triumphantly. When a triumphant cry burst from them like a beast unchained. So the only thing that I really had here was just inside Duker's mind. He's, you know, I guess kind of having that, that, you know, life before your eyes type of moment. And he's going all the way back to Sar and just like re going, reliving the tale in his head. So, I mean, he must feel like the journey is at an end at least even for me it seems weird though like they've reached aaron but i guess i never really thought that they would get this far i mean we, we hoped right but it just seemed mm-hmm. imp- impossible and now at least part of them have made it um yeah lost a lot of people along the way though yeah 
But um, yeah, I mean, it was a really short section. It's just kind of like finalizing that uh, that journey, right? They've reached Aaron. Yeah, it's but I don't. It, it is like you said. It's weird because it doesn't really feel like a relief yet. And maybe once we get, I don't know if we'll see anything in the next chapter with it. But whenever we find out more, maybe it'll feel a little bit more, I guess, safe at that point. But yeah, right now it still doesn't. To me, anyways. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm good to move on if you are. All right. And we are going to ch- change directions here. <laughs> Go on somewhere else. Shadows flowed silently over the hills as Apt scanned the horizon one last time. She dipped her head to look at the boy sitting below her. He was also studying the Shadow Realm's landscape. After a moment, he looked up to App and asked if this was home. A voice spoke nearby about how his colleague underestimates the natives of this land. He was also surprised to see the boy. The stranger told Apt that no matter how good her intentions of raising the boy, it would only scar him for years to come. She hissed and clicked in reply. The stranger told Apt that she had done the exact opposite, and now he belonged to neither. Apt spoke again, and the stranger said that was presumptuous and introduced himself to the child, saying he was Uncle Cotillion. The boy said he can't be because his eyes are different. Two small eyes fighting as one. They must be weak. And when he approached, he walked through a stone wall and trees rippling in the ghost world as if as if ignorant of its right to dwell here. Cotillion looked around, confused, and asked Apt if the boy had lost his mind. Apt gave him a mouthful. Finally, Cotillion asked the boy for his name. He said it was panic. Cotillion asked beyond his name. What else did he remember of his other world? Panic said he remembered being punished. He was told to stay close to his father. Cotillion asked what he looked like. Panic didn't remember. He didn't remember any faces. He remembered waiting to see what would happen to them. Then they separated the children from the adults and they punished him and all the other children for not doing what they were told. Coltane said he didn't think his father had much of a choice in the matter. Panic said the enemy were fathers too, and mothers, and grandmothers, and they were all so angry with him. They took their clothes and sandals. Then they were punished. Cotillion asked how they were punished. Panic said they were nailed to crosses. Cotillion was silent for a moment. Finally speaking, he said, You remember that then? Panic said yes, and he promises to do as he's told. Whatever mother says. Cotillion told Panic to listen carefully. He wasn't punished because he didn't listen. They heard him simply because they could. There was no one to stop them. His father probably tried to stop them, but in the end, he was just as helpless. But he has mother now and Uncle Cotillion, and they'll make sure he's never helpless again. Panic agreed, and Cotillion said they could teach each other. Panic didn't know what he could teach him. Cotillion said he could teach him what he sees here in the ghost world, in the shadow hold that was, the old places that remain. Panic said, what you walk through unseeing? Cotillion said yes. He wondered why the hounds never run straight. Panic asked about the hounds and was told he'd eventually meet them, all cuddly puppies. Panic said he liked dogs, and Cotillion was sure they'd like him too. Cotillion looked at App and said she could not do this alone and to let him and Amanus think on it. He told Panic that his mother now had other debts to pay. Did he want to go with her 
or Uncle Cotillion. Panic asked where he was going, and Cotillion said the other children had been deposited nearby. Maybe Panic would like to see the other kids. He said he would, but not right away, so he will go with Mother. The man that asked her to save them needs to be looked after. He wants to meet him, and Mother says he dreams of him when he first met him. Cotillion said he was sure that he does, and like him, he is haunted by helplessness. Cotillion bade him farewell and turned to Apt, saying that when he ascended, it was to escape the nightmares of feelings. Imagine his surprise that he now needs to thank her for these chains. Panic interrupted, asking if Uncle Cotillion has any kids. He said he had a daughter of sorts, but they had a falling out. Panic said he should forgive her. Irritated, Cotillion called him a damned upstart. Panic countered by saying that they need to teach each other. With wide eyes, Cotillion told him, in this case, the forgiveness needed to come to be the other way around. Panic wanted to meet her. Cotillion said anything was possible. He told Apt to give Kalam his regards as he disappeared into shadow. Panic kept looking, asking if he thought he walked unseen. What a weird fucking section, man. Yeah, and I have, like, at one point, Mother is capitalized. So it makes me wonder, is that really referring to Apt? Or maybe, like, Mother Dark or somebody? Um, Because I don't know why, unless it was just, like, a mistake that it was capitalized. Like, in other instances in this chapter, when... I feel like it's in this section when it's referring to apt mother is not capitalized, but that one time, I don't know if you picked up on that. I didn't not at all. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it's possible that we could be talking about two different mothers here, but yeah, it's, it's all just very weird. It is really weird. I'm, and I'm struggling to make any sense of it. And I almost think that that's the point. It kind of seems like they're in the uh, they're in the ghost world, right? And I feel like they have been following Kalam in this ghost world. Is kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's that's what it felt like. And now they're gonna, you know, go meet him. But did all these children die? And Aptorian saved their souls, but not necessarily their physical bodies. I don't know, man. Because yeah. When Cotillion says the other children have been deposited nearby, like, it <laughs> doesn't sound very good. Like, I don't know. So what is Shadow means. Throne, like, purgatory or, like, a place of lost souls? Are Shadow Throne and the ghost world the same? I don't know. Because at the beginning, he says that he's studying Shadow Realm's landscape. Landscape. But then they talk about the Shadow World without really differing the two. So is that the comparison that we're supposed to make? Maybe. And maybe you're right. Maybe it is like a purgatory because they haven't like crossed Hood's gate. It doesn't seem. So I don't I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Amanis and Cotillion are, are totally, totally are going to use these children's souls, you know, uh, for for whatever their need is. But yeah, I it's just it's interesting. I don't your guess is as good as mine. I, I really have no idea what to make of this it was a really cool and interesting section and i like i like your yeah. purgatory idea we'll, we'll see how that pans out right i also really enjoyed panic and cotillion's interaction here you know 
I kind of get from Cotillion the the uncle vibe, you know? Yeah. And that they can like teach each other things. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of lost lost in this one too. I feel like it's not very often that I'm stumped, but I feel really stumped in this one. Yeah, it was probably a, the most bizarre part of this chapter. But yeah, I'll be interested to see where it goes. Well, and I think it's because like we don't really get very much Shadow Realm time or even the Ghost World time. Right. Like we're not we don't spend a lot of time in there. You know, it's kind of like the whole Imperial Warren thing. I think, you know, we'll remember the, we'll remember the scene, and like as we continue on with the series, this scene will probably start to make more sense. I, I would, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I hope Aptorian doesn't go away. I mean, I would hate for her to just not exist outside this book. It's yeah, I don't know. Again, we're dwindling on pages, so. If if Apt is going to get killed off it's, or something, you know, I don't know. It's going to happen quick or I would have to think she's going to be involved somehow for at least a little bit longer in another book. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can only hope so. But yeah, I guess I, I, I wish that I had more to say about um, about this chapter or about the section, excuse me, in this chapter. I like the visual that I got. I like yeah. the interaction. I still want to know what Apt is saying, you know, <laughs> like clicks and hisses, you know, I feel like that also makes it hard to understand what, what's happening too, is because, you know, that's not really revealed either. Right. Yeah. It's just uh, kind of left up to the imagination. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but yeah, I guess, should we move on or... Should we continue to struggle to try to decipher this section? Uh, I think I'm ready to move on. And this will be what, your your last section here, right? No, nope, second to last. Second to Oh, that's right. You got the very last one, don't you? Yep. That's right. All right. But I feel like this section that I'm about to read ties into a lot of the things that we were going to talk about when we started this episode. I'm trying to forget, or I'm trying to remember what those were. So hopefully they'll pop back up for us here <laughs> sure. now that we're rounding around the three hour mark um, of this episode. The rag stopper dropped anchor and came to rest in Malaz Harbor, a hundred yards from the docks. Dull yellow lights marked the lower quarters front street to the north was a ridge that was home to the nobles and merchants of the city. The larger estates abutting the cliff wall and the stairs that ascended to Mox hold. Few lights were visible on Moxhold, though Kalam could see a pennant flying heavily in the wind. Too dark to see the colors, a shiver of foreboding ran through him at the sight of the pennant. Inside his mind, he thought that someone was here, someone important. The midnight bell had sounded, and Kalam thought to himself that Salk Elon was right, and damn him. Malaya's city had never been part of the plan. He had intended to meet Fiddler and Unta, Quick had insisted that Fid would come through via Deadhouse. However, the mage wasn't very specific on the details. Kalam had begun to view the Deadhouse as a potential way of escaping anything that went wrong. Kalam never liked the Azath and had no faith in something that was benign. The crews on the rag stopper had gone quiet, and Kalam wondered if they were all sleeping on the deck. He leaned on the forecastle railing and gazed at the city and the ships in the harbor. Sounds from another ship edging its way to the pier, another late arrival, 
The, the assassin looked down at his hands and felt as if there was someone else's, not his own, but the victim of someone else's will. He shrugged off the sensation. He observed all the city had to offer him at this late hour. He thought to himself that if anyone could make it, it was Fiddler. What would the sapper say if he were here right now? He would say, move your hands, Cal. Something is off. Kalam looked back at his hands and willed them to move. Nothing. He attempted to move back and was, a, was unable to, as if his muscles were locked. A soft voice spoke behind him, saying that there was such irony in this. Your mind has betrayed you, the formidable, deadly mind of the assassin Kalam Makar. Salk leaned on the rail next to him, studying the city. He admits to Kalam that he's admired him for so long. Kalam was a damn legend and the finest killer the Claw had ever had and lost. He tells Kalam that he could have now been in command, although Topper would disagree. Topper would have killed Salk on his first day, regardless of how uncertain Topper was of the risk Salk would have presented. Salk admits that, knife to knife though, Kalam was better than Topper. Salk goes on and explains to Kalam that he wasn't even in Seven Cities to find him, as they didn't even know of Kalam's presence there. Until, that is, he came across a red blade that intended, that indeed was following the assassin and had been since Irliton. He asks Kalam if he knew that he led the red blades right to Shaikh's after he delivered the book and they killed her. He, at this point, reveals his true name which is Pearl. Pearl admits that Kalam had thrown him for a loop once when Kalam made that comment that Quick Ben was with him. Pearl realized that if this was true, he'd already be dead. He tells Kalam that he should have never left the claw. They don't take rejection well. And the Empress wants a conversation with Kalam. That is, before he's skinned alive. Things aren't so simple, though. And so here we are. Kalam, from his peripheral vision, could see Pearl pull out a dagger. Pearl told Kalam that with the unchanged laws of the claw, one in particular which Kalam knew quite well, the blade stuck into Kalam's side with a surge of pain. After more words were shared with the assassin, Salk picked, up, picked him up and said that once he hit the water, he would awaken. He would be quite a swim, especially with the armor Kalam was wearing. And with the blood, well, the harbor was notorious for sharks. Pearl said that he was confident that Kalam would reach the shore after that. Shore after that, though. Well, Kalam felt himself being lifted and then falling over the rail into the water. He could hear Pearl saying it was a damn shame that he'd have to go. He'd have to do with the captain and the crew or what he'd have to do with the captain and the crew. But he's got no choice. Kalam struck the water with a splash. Pearl removed a couple throat stickers and turned to face the men sleeping on the deck. The shape that emerged from the shadows was huge and angular. Pearl stepped back and smiled. He said to the shape that now he gets an opportunity to thank the creature for its efforts with the scent. He stated that he knows not, not why the creature is here or how it got here, but hopes that it will accept his gratitude. The rider whispered that Kalam was here not a minute ago. Pearl's eyes narrowed and said that Kalam had gone into the city. Before he could finish the sentence, the demon lunged at Pearl. He was thrown 20 paces away where he crashed into a dory, his shoulder now dislocated. He rolled over and forced himself into a sitting position. He then said that it appeared that he's met his match. He reached into his shirt and threw the tiny bottle. 
It shattered the deck, smoke billing between them. Pearl said that the Kenrala looked eager. He struggled to his feet as he said that he would leave the two to it, as there was a certain tavern in Malaz City that he's been dying to see. He gestured, and a warrant opened, and then, and then it swept over him. Apt watched as the Imperial demon took form. The child reached down and patted Apt's shoulder and told her to be quick with this one. Yeah, was not uh, expecting some of that. Nope, not at all. Um, I guess I'll start off by saying that, and I know it's been almost nine months since we started this book, but I'm a little confused about what the original plan was. Is because, like, I know that they were supposed to meet an Unta, and I understand that things went awry, and thus Fiddler had to change his course and look for Tremolor instead. Is there, was there a dead house in Unta too? Like, if both of them were supposed to meet up in Unta, how are they supposed to get to Malaz City? Or is the Emperor in, or is the Empress in Unta, or is she in Malaz City? I guess, do you remember how they were, how Fiddler specifically? Was supposed to get to to Unta? Uh, not really. No, I do not. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, yeah, it's been a bit. I don't remember either. But somebody can that, remind us for sure. For sure. I just I think it's interesting that if Tremolor Tremolor seems to be uh, Plan B, but yet Opon's luck has Kalam getting. I don't even know what the the nautical term for a ship not ending up at its destination, um, like sideswiped from where they were supposed to go to Malaz City. Yeah, it's it seems lucky. And now, <laughs> and now they're gonna meet there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, unless I'm getting that wrong too, maybe the ship was supposed to go to Malaz City. I didn't think it was. I feel I, like. I didn't yeah. think so either. No, I, I don't. I think I think you're right on that. But yeah, I think I feel like uh, it's. I feel like Kalam and Fiddler were were supposed to meet in Aaron. I just don't remember how Fiddler was going to get to Aaron originally. I think they were just going to walk, weren't they, or ride horses there or whatever. I feel like it was going to be an overland thing, but maybe I'm not remembering that right. And then they got caught up with the whirlwind and the divers and stuff. Right. And then this girl post and all that stuff. That crazy guy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I guess I don't, I don't recall that, but maybe I'll have to like listen to our episodes after it's all done. Check them out, man. Um, I think that when you saw or Pearl is, is talking about Topper, and how Topper would have killed Pearl on his first day, um, regardless of how uncertain Topper was of the risk Pearl would have presented. I find it's interesting, and I kind of feel like I get the sense that Pearl is a little restless here. Or is Topper hesitant because of Pearl's rare abilities, if that makes any sense. Do you think that because of what Pearl can do makes people think he's a risk maybe or maybe he's just worth keeping around because of his abilities maybe i uh, yeah i guess i don't know but this is why i didn't believe him in the first section with the boat is because of everything that he did to kalam here like pretty much force kalam kalam's will 
you know, like this must be like the strength, like his ability at its full force that it can cause one's body's own confusion. And then because of that confusion, it makes them unable to move. I don't know. So you th- when so you think when he stabbed Kalam, he had him like in a position where he couldn't move? Yeah, because he couldn't move his hands. Kalam did, couldn't move his hands. I did not pick that up. Yeah, I, so I, think, I thought he just saw it like and he was too late, like because. Um, but I know he said he wasn't going to let him sneak up on him again. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yep. Didn't catch that. So, so. And I mean. Kalam doesn't even fight him when he gets thrown overboard, you know, it's because he can't move. And then Pearl says that he'll awaken when he hits the water. I guess I took that as like, well, cause he got stabbed. He said, and Pearl said, well, it's not enough to kill you. You're just going to lose a lot of blood. So I thought maybe he kind of like blacked out and then just the impact from hitting the water. I'm assuming the water is probably cold. Like that was going to wake him up. That's kind of what I thought. Mm. No, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Another case yeah. of reading the same words and coming to different uh, outcomes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, that's where I'm getting in my head. Canon is like, that's how he was able to confuse everybody. Gotcha. Okay. You know, including the treasurer, right? So if you think about it, how or so make the treasurer feel like salt or like pearls on his side. Maybe. Yes, he's a tricksy, tricksy fellow. Exactly. Exactly. Slight <laughs> of hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. That was good. That was good. Yeah. Um, but also, like, if we think about it, Pearl admits to Kalam in this, like, montage of, like, ha-ha, I defeated you, you know, um, this, he wasn't even on the Seven Cities, to find Kalam. He wasn't even there initially. So one, I'm wondering what was his original mission about? And two, is it just happenstance that Salk was coming out of the Imperial Warren as Lestara was coming in? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what his uh, mission would have been. And what, I mean, and and I guess who directed him to change his mission once he found out about Kalam, unless maybe that was just like a standing order. Like, oh, if you come across Kalam, drop everything and get after him or something. Yeah. So I wonder if Mebra is like a claw too then, or maybe they're not even related at all. Maybe Pearl and, uh, and Mebra aren't even a thing. Maybe that was just Kalam pulling at straws, you know? Could have been. But... Yeah, I just, I feel like, I almost felt like we were going to get an answer to the book, the book question uh, in the section when it was just like, you do realize that you allowed the Red Blades to kill the Shaikh after you delivered the book, which I was hoping after that was like, which was fake anyway. <laughs> yeah, snatch it away came. from you. It never came. Oh, well. But hey, we were right about Pearl. I I fucking, I called it. You did. You did. That was pretty cool. (laughs) Yep. So uh, one thing that I thought was really funny in this section was Pearl, as he's basically leaving the demon and Aptorian to fight, he's like, 
Well, there's a certain tavern in Malaw City that I've been dying to see. But get it? It's because it's a dead house. Dying to see. <laughs> or maybe it's not. But I feel like, again, Smiley's is related to the dead house. So I just I thought that that was funny. But not even uh, from what we've seen, not everybody can get into a dead house, though. So why would it be a tavern? I don't know. <laughs> I know. I don't think that they're the same thing. Let me clarify. I don't think that they are the same thing. I think that, like, it is near the dead house. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Yes. That's fair. So, yeah. I, uh, the only thing that I had to say was, like, fucking apt to the rescue here, right? Mm, well, so. maybe. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, is App going to, like, jump into the water here and pull him out? I hope so. Well, no, actually, we'll talk about that in my last section. All right. Um, did you have anything else then? I did not. Um, I think it was really cool to to see Pearl's intent just finally laid out on the table. And I guess I feel good being that I didn't... I knew that there was something wrong with him and it all came to fruition. You didn't waver. You stuck with it and you were right. Yep. yep. Nice job. That was a good call, man. Thanks dude. <laughs> but yeah, I'm done. If you're done or if I'm ready, if you're ready. Sure. Either works. <laughs> all right. Uh, my last section here, the rag stopper pitched wildly in the dark as it shuddered with explosions all around. He could hear voices on the deck. The captain climbed out of bed with a clarity he had not known in months. Freedom that told him Pearl's influence was gone. As he got to the deck, he found himself looking at his sailors, cowering in front of two creatures doing battle. The larger of the two was a mess, unable to match the smaller speed. With lightning speed and the blind flailing with its big-ass axe, it had ripped the deck to pieces. An earlier swing had nearly taken the mast off, but it hung in the ropes, listing the ship. He'd ordered the first mate to get the remaining escape boats to the stern where they would lower them. The first mate said he was back and started calling him a name. Carther, he was cut off saying this was Malice City and he drowned years ago. He said the rag stopper wasn't going to survive the battle. The first mate was worried about the loot. The captain said they can raise it later, but they have to be alive to do that. Now hurry up with the escape boats. They're going down, down in an earlier round and sugar they're going down swinging. Beru, Fend, the sea is crawling with sharks. That was very nice fallout boy. Uh, homage there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the captain is somebody, was it, I thought it was Kalam, but maybe it was Quick Ben. Somebody, was it somebody that Kalam has worked with before? Because I can't remember what his name was. Um, and I don't remember who named him before. Maybe it was. Maybe it was like Stormy in that group. And I feel like the name was Cartheron for some reason, but maybe I'm wrong on that. But I feel like whatever oh, name... Trust. Was that it? I think that's the name you're looking for. The guy that was lost at sea. Who is he was like... Clearly not now. Well, I think like it was fist. during... Wasn't he a fist or something? Yeah, he was He was a captain under Desim Ultor's reign, I thought. There's something there for sure, and I don't remember the details on it. Um, but there's definitely some sort of connection or I've, I sure feel like there is. Hmm. I mean, you're right. I, I, I remember it was a conversation with Bolt, Duiker and Coltane as they were defending 
Lucene's actions. It was that conversation. Okay. Like very early on in the beginning of the book, they talked about Cartheron Crust disappearing. So it's possible that very well could be something. I don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. Um, but it also could just be his name is Carther and whatever he was going to say was cut off. I feel like they cut the name off personally, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. So do you think that the bigger of the two is the the guy or the demon with the axe? Yeah. And Aptorian is the faster one. Yes. I thought it was interesting that we didn't really get much of that battle here. You know, they just talk about it and the mess that it was making on the rag stopper. Yeah. But actually the battle itself. Yeah, it you sounded like that- I mean well, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I was just asking you if you found that odd or weird. I mean, not really, I guess. Just from the descriptions, I, I got a clear enough picture in it in my head, you know, as far as what was taking place. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, um, yeah, these last two sections were really, really short. And I think it's just, it's winding down the chapter because they're they're so short. And there's really not a lot of of information it's just kind of moving moving the story along still right yeah i don't know if you have thoughts on this section i did not um yeah no not really i think i'm good all right man uh my last section here uh 50 yards out the captain of the fast trader and his first mate stood straining to make out the source of the commotion captain called out to the back the oars to the back oars as that ship was going down. Assemble rescue crews, assemble rescue crews and lower the boats. Horse hooves interrupted him as a horse clomped onto deck. The first mate goes to intercede, asking how that horse had gotten on deck. A woman tightened her grip on the reins and said that she was sorry she couldn't wait any longer. Sailors and Marines scattered as she drove as she drove the horse forward, the horse cleared the rails and leaped out into darkness. A loud splash was heard a moment later. The captain told his first mate to get the ship's mage to clear a path through the sharks and whatever else might await her, but be quick about it. Any idea on who this person is? Uh, The woman on the horse? Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. (laughs) This is your section. You cannot take, but yeah, I I remember who it was. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Something you said earlier in the episode made me think you didn't. So... Oh, yeah. maybe I, I guess I was just confused at that point. Maybe I didn't know what you were referring to. Oh, when you said Apt was going to save Kalam. Oh. Was also, no, I think it's Manala. Who, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I don't know. I mean, it could be a combined effort. I don't know. Yeah. You do realize, though, that the fast trader that had been following them this, this whole time was the one that Manala was on, right? I don't really know if I had put that together. I, I feel like I probably knew it at one point and I might have forgotten about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally forgot that Manalo was following him, you know, because it had been, I think it's been like four or five chapters since we read about her getting on the Imperial Trader or whatever this, this boat is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a bit. So, but my question is, is like, did she influence them to follow the boat or is this just happenstance? Like, I feel like it's kind of a gutsy call to get on a boat and not know its destination or even know where Kalam's boat is headed. 
and for them to end up in the same harbor, like I feel would take some convincing. That's why I think, uh, Pearl was telling the truth when he looked, you know, throughout the ship, um, is that, you know, there's the mage on this other ship. I, well, I, I don't know because now we got the fucking captain who's got a clear head now. Now that he's gone, yep. I don't. Hmm. Yeah. Well, damn. I'm a hundred percent sure it's Salk that had the influence over the ship. Ship. Um, I think. Yeah. I think that he was aware of the ship trailing them, and that's why he like made the storm. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I. I mean, there's definitely something there. Whether it was someone on the fast trader or whether it was it was Salk or Pearl, I'm pretty sure my my gut is going to go to Pearl. I'm a little split on it still, and I don't know why. I mean, the evidence is right there. I don't. I mean, but they get there's always those like smaller things that like cast out. So I get it. I hear you. Yeah, I don't know. And now now I just imagine like <laughs> this mage parting the sea. Like Moses in the Bible story, parting the sea so she can run her horse down through there. Yeah. I don't know if he's parting it. I thought he was just making a way that was clear of sharks. I can't imagine a horse is going to swim real fast. I don't know. I mean, they got pow- more powerful legs than we do. Yeah, but I imagine she's got a... I don't know. I've never seen a horse swim, I guess, so I don't know. Huh. Fair enough. I see you're using your new, uh, your new your sound shield here. You can see it? Yeah, in the mirror. Oh, I am using it. Hopefully it helps. I'm in the closet too, which I think generally sounds better, but uh, we'll see if it helps even more. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I won't be able to tell (laughs) until I start recording or I start editing the Silverstones episode, which is when you first started using it. So Yeah, that was the first one. I didn't realize my camera angle was all off. It's all good. But yeah, I guess... uh, Man, what a what a great chapter! I I feel lost. I feel heartbroken. Um, I have answers, or I have questions. I have answers. There are things that I still don't understand. Um, but I guess what's really cool is just how much more Malazan knowledge I have at this point. You know, I feel like when we were reading Gardens of the Moon, the Zath was such a new concept to us. And now that we have more information on it, it actually kind of makes those pieces back then seem less, but less difficult, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a hell of a chapter. And I know this next one's pretty short. It's like 14 pages or something. I think we talked about. Mm-hmm. So I wonder 20, if, 21, I think. Oh, I thought it was shorter than that, but maybe it's, yeah, whatever. It's still shorter than this one. So I wonder yeah, I don't even know what we're going to get in that. I don't either. I don't think it's going to be good. We'll have to read on and find out. Which I will do probably in the next 15 minutes. Ooh. So, yeah. I don't know what your plans are the rest of the day, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to read when we're done because I can't hold it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to try to at least before bed I'm going to try to get through it, but I don't know. You'll probably get to it before me then if you're going to do it here shortly. Yeah. I guess any predictions on what this next chapter will spill out or even the rest of the book? I, I, I don't know. I, since it's going to be a shorter chapter, it makes me wonder if we're going to see everybody. So I don't even know who to think this chapter will focus on. I wonder what, what kind of aftermath we're going to see in Aaron. Um, 
what the fuck is going to happen with Kalam? Is he going to sink like a rock to the bottom of the ocean in the bay? Is he going to get eaten by a shark? I don't think he's going to die. Um, yeah, Manala going to get him. What's going on with Apt and Panic? Tremolore? Ah, man, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to be frustrated because I don't think we're going to get to see everybody. No, I don't think so either. I think because this chapter didn't focus on fellows in and them, I think that we're going to get... I think that we're going to get something to do with them. Um, and then probably maybe if I had to guess Duiker and his spot in Aaron, and then maybe another perspective of somebody, I feel like we're only going to get like three people or three people's journeys here. Yeah. Well, or maybe just one massive one, you know? Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I, I will be excited to find out here. Like I said, I think I'll get to it tonight at least. So fuck. Yeah, dude. I think uh, I think this episode will probably challenge for our longest one yet. It's going to be close anyways. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to continue. Oh, yeah. I'll have to let you know how long it is once it's done. Once it's done the saving. <laughs> right. Well, wrap this thing up here. Let's do it. All right. Well, that was, again, a great episode. Um Check us out on social media. We haven't done anything on TikTok for a bit. Kind of fell off. Yeah. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, if you have the means, if you're able, we'd love to have you check out our Patreon. Um, I think that still has a week free on it. I'm not sure. It does. It does. Uh, um, again, uh, like just with the format of our show, it's not probably a huge incentive, but hey, it's it's a free week get one episode uh, a little bit earlier at that anyway. So, um, well, and you would have, depending on what tier you do, you would have access. So if you do the fifth tier or not the fifth tier, but the, uh, the main quest tier, you should have visibility to all that has been published to that. So all of our behind the scenes stuff that I post up there. Good point. Which Did is not think of that. just the unedited videos of, of us doing this. And the potty breaks and the random confusions, the things that like do eventually get edited out, um, that stuff you get to see. So, yeah, yeah. sometimes man, I mean, people love that stuff. I think some of them do anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, because I'm assuming they get to see our like facial expressions and, you know, um, the, the moments of contemplation and like our thoughts, you know, so right. some visual acuity, I guess. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, yeah man. What a, yeah, great episode. I'm anxious to finish this book and move on to the third book in the series, which is crazy to say, man. It's right there. That close. Right there. Only like four more weeks left, and then we're going to talk to Mr. Erickson. So, uh, yeah, excited, nervous, all the above. Yep, exactly. All right, buddy. Well, I guess enjoy the rest of your afternoon. I'm going to go demolish his chapter so <laughs> yeah i look forward to hearing from you all right dude we'll we'll talk in about an hour <laughs> sounds good talk to you later all right later man bye bye